I wanted people to understand that the world of restaurants, especially the world of restaurants in, in America, um, is much different in the 70s and 80s than they've become. We're still, I think we still have a purpose to blow people away. Our purpose is to take people out of the real world for two or three or four hours a day and put them into a world of what if. Welcome to the first live, as in with an audience, episode of Pancom Podcast. I am pleased that the result of nobody asking me whether there was a dress code is everything I dreamed it would be. There are caps, there are suits, there's, uh, I think Larry's in a cuavera. This is all very exciting. Uh, we've never done this with an audience, although we had been talking about doing it with an audience since something like, like before COVID, before the world turned upside down, and now we're finally back here. Um, with me looking at Mike's Miami against the world uh, on his back. So this all feels very fitting. Perfect. Um, so there are, for those of you who are in our listening audience, there are a little more than a dozen people here. Uh, most of them past guests, but all of them uh, somehow or another connected to our podcast. In fact, I want to say that the only person here, um, aside from Janet, who is here accompanying our, our interviewee, Norman, who's a, a multiple-time guest on the podcast. Uh, the only person who hasn't been a guest is Terrence Riley over here in that Aganorsa cigars uh, and the Aganorsa Leaf Polo. Mythical and Terrence. Terrence Riley is with our cigar sponsor, Aganorsa Leaf, but Terrence Riley is really, I mean, Terrence Riley has had the most consistent presence through cigars and that hookup on our podcast. Uh, if not for Terrence, this Thanks. podcast might not, not still be around because I don't know that Mike and I would sit across from each other without the effects of tobacco. That's a fact. For two years plus. That's a fact. Um, so I'm just going to uh, read through this list again for our listening audience. We are joined by Larry Carino of Brussman Carino PR, John Falco of Fire Pit Hospitality, and this might be the first time anyone has ever heard that company name. Uh, that's Lincoln's Beard, it's Strange Beast, it's Maxwell Brothers, where we maybe will be doing an event soon, hopefully, probably, maybe. Um, so we're also, uh, unfortunately, not joined by Danny Surfer. He is here in spirit, and you're all missing out on his yo-yo tricks. Uh, that was going to be like an intermission, and we right. all missed out on that. Uh, Nidal Barake of Glutonomy, our, I think, most recent guest that we recorded with. Uh, Matt Kusher of Kush Hospitality, of course, with uh, Pata Sucia Palooza coming up. And we'll have to hope that he didn't bring a bag of chancletas to throw at people. Uh, Terrence Riley, we mentioned. Carolina Quijano of Exquisito Chocolates, Miami's only, or first, first or still only, only legit chocolate factory, and also the bearer of, since, I mean, yeah, I think maybe the best gifts we've gotten on this podcast so far. I think we were, I, Mike, I, I don't know if you feel comfortable sliding anybody that way, but... I mean, they were delicious. Those chocolates were pretty great. Uh, Otto Othman and Nadal Ahmad, co-founders of Pincho, formerly Pincho Factory. And if you ask another past guest, Seth Burgerbeast Gonzalez, liars about their shared family tree. <laughs> Seth is apparently a Pincho Factory birther who claims these two are not cousins. Um, <laughs> what a jerk. 
I know. Uh, David Benjano, who is the host of our uh, sister podcast, I guess is a fair way to refer to it, Step Into the Sandbox. He's a partner at Beyond the Agency, uh, which did all kinds of work with John Falco and his places. Uh, and then we're waiting on Josh Pasquale of Josh's Premium Meats, who sells people nice meat. Um, at some point, just to give you all a heads up, uh, I'm, I don't need to give anybody a, a primer on what's going on in Cuba and around the Cuba subject. I'm expecting that Rosa Maria Paya, who has also been a guest on this podcast, will sort of pop in, and we're going to very, in very Pancom podcast fashion, awkwardly stop everything to give her about five minutes uh, to address us. I have no idea what she wants to say, but I'm sure whatever it is is worth stopping everything for. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, with that, Mike, that is the longest. Oh, by the way, Petey the dog is here. Uh, and last but certainly not least, although I'll always put Petey the dog first, uh, a lot of you are meeting Carlos Carluba Rodriguez for the first time. Uh, and if you had met him before, you wouldn't recognize him because he's lost a ton of weight, shaved a beard, and got a haircut. Yeah. Uh, Wearing a jacket. There's a jacket involved. He's the best dressed person, person in the room. So uh, Carlos is, is my partner in, in all Life. of this. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in all of this stuff, um, in, in date, in Pancom Podcast, in the sandbox, in the blind tasting stuff that, that actually, uh, how many of you? At least a couple of you have been involved in. Um, and I will leave the introduction to Norman to Mike because, Mike, you're certainly going to do a better job. Oh, you might do a better job. At I don't time. think I'll do a better yeah. job at intros. This is, where I, this is where I back away slowly. Chef, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me here again. Again. Um, Chef Norman Van Aken, my mentor, dear friend, um, someone that I've looked up to for a very, very long time. Thank you for coming on the podcast and then doing it in front of these great people that have also, uh, for some reason, decided they want to do the podcast also. So I think um, because of this and kind of like the people in this room, mm -hmm. there was a, a couple of things that I wanted to talk about before we got into just like overall stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, there was one thing I, I addressed with my staff, I, I think it was about two and a half weeks ago. And it was perspective and reflect, like reflection on the last, I don't know, 18 months of our lives, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, me, personally, I'm, I'm not great at that. Uh, and I think that maybe you can talk a little bit more as like someone who spent years in the industry, how it's, it's kind of tough. It has been tough for me. Mm. Um, and I sat the whole kitchen staff in this room. Uh, and showed them a couple of videos of uh, kind of our tastings and some of the things that we did over the last 18 months and basically asked them all, what is your perspective when you look at this and when you, if you were given the chance to reflect on the last 18 months of your life, maybe not personally, but just professionally, like what would be the thing that kind of, pops up first. I know for me, watching those videos, looking at the people in the room, I mean, when we reopened post-COVID, uh, the kitchen staff was five people, uh, six including me, and Chef Devin plus one. So a very small team. 
And in that time, we did, you know, very elaborate tastings, 10, 14 courses. We opened seven days a week, and that was like a big sticking point for me that we we're going to open seven days a week. And even when things got very bad, because they did get very bad again, as I'm sure everyone in this room has felt, um, we pushed through it. And I heard some very interesting comments and I heard some very interesting perspective. Um, but the one thing that I don't think I heard at all was people giving them the opportunity to reflect on their own personal growth or like their own fight through everything, right? Forget about uh, just dealing with like day-to-day food, day-to-day service, just from like the mental aspect of like the wear and tear of like how the world is essentially falling apart and you're still asked to go to work every day. So things I shared with them was I saw a ton of growth from a lot of people, uh, personal, professional, and even I saw a lot of growth in myself. Um, you know, I still, I still consider myself relatively young. And compared um, to me, you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think I grew up a, a ton in the last like year from a coaching perspective, mm-hmm. you know, like being able to, um, I think, relinquish responsibility of certain things, uh, because as chefs, we're like incredible micromanagers mm-hmm. and we want everything to be very good. We want everything to be the way that we think it's very good. And I started to kind of let go of certain things to give people the opportunity for them themselves to grow. Mm. The reason why I mentioned that is because I feel like that's a lot of how my last stint working for you was. You know, you gave me an opportunity to kind of fail. You gave me an opportunity to grow. You gave me an opportunity to try different food. And then when I kind of came into this role six years ago, I don't know if I did a great job of doing that. So in the last year, I've made it a point to like, well, how do we collectively look at this and how do we collectively grow? What do you think it should be like? Not just me. How do you think the dish should be? Mm -hmm. Why do you think the dish should be that way? How will it work for service? Mm -hmm. How will it work for the guests? Does it still represent who we are? And that's something that you told me a long time ago when I, um, came up with, I don't know, I used to be, have a lot of energy. So um, three or four dishes that I presented to you and you were like, they're great, but they don't really represent what we do. So I think just your thought on perspective and reflection in the industry and what that really means to, I think, all of us and a lot of people in this room, I think, could agree. My battles uh, have been more individual battles and personal battles and situational battles in regards to um, my my successes and my failures. <clears throat> you know, I I didn't have any idea what I was doing when I began to be a cook. I was I had been fired from a job roofing, and I thought that was a good fucking day. Hmm. Until I realized that I had come up with rent real fast. Hmm. And so I opened up uh, a newspaper 
the help wanted area of this newspaper. It wasn't an actual newspaper. It was kind of a place that you go and you could buy a boat or you could buy a used car or, you know, whatever. That's called called the advertiser. And they had an ad for a short order cook, no experience necessary. I circled that thing, tied my hair back, stuck it underneath a sweater that I had from high school, applied for a job in a diner, and lo and behold, they hired me for $3 an hour, and I entered the world of the restaurants. I was aware of the world of restaurants because my mom was in the restaurant world, and she loved it, but it was not a career. It was not anything anybody talked about in my life as far as this is, you know, be a chef. You could be on TV. You'd be like locked up and put in a wacky bin if people talk that way back in, you know, when I began. And um, and yet there was something very appealing to being in the restaurant atmosphere that I loved. The smell of food, being able to eat food, being mm-hmm. able to flirt with waitresses, being able to have a team, you know, be a part of a team, which we were. We were, it was us kind of against them in the sense of not going down for the breakfast shift, not going down for the lunch shift. I started off as a breakfast cook. Um, then, you know, I still, uh, even though I worked in another restaurant and another restaurant and another restaurant, it's just because I really didn't have skills in anything other than what I was doing. I did like it, but it was not a career. Nobody thought about that in that way. But then subsequently, I um, I had been to Key West and fallen in love with Key West. And then I met my wife-to-be, Janet, in that very first restaurant I was a cook at. And I convinced her to come and live with me in Key West, which we did. And so my going back, circling back to the, you know, the ideas of the individual battles and the, um, and the ups and downs. Um, I'd never been to school. I never, and I've never gone to cooking school. And so my life was about learning how to survive on a hotline. Um, I had made up my mind for some reason that this is what I was going to do. And I did it. And I continued to do it in expanding ways, eventually becoming the chef. But what's happened with all of you and you has never happened before. Not in all of the years that any of us are alive, even me. Not by far. Not since, you know, the Spanish flu, right? Not Mm. since that. So going back to around 1917, 1918, there's been nothing comparable to it. And um, our industry has has been transformed without us giving it any permission. Mm. I'm on the, you know, I'm on the the 20th chapter of I don't know how many chapters. You're on chapter 4. Right. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful way. I mean that this shit hit you with no playbook, no what do we do now as it was hitting the rest of not the city not the state, but the world. You all, all of you, it just blows my mind what you have had to go through to continue to dream your dream. I didn't have that. I didn't have that cataclysmic event while everybody I knew was also having that cataclysmic event. I had my personal cataclysmic events, you know, I've had restaurants fail. I've had, you know, I've had so many amazing in, in, incidences that I wrote an entire memoir on that. And I wrote that memoir because I wanted people to 
understand that the world of restaurants, especially the world of restaurants in, in America, um, is much different in the 70s and 80s than they've become. We're still, I think we still have a purpose to blow people away. Our purpose is to take people out of the real world for two or three or four hours a day and put them into a world of what if. And so I dedicated myself, I've dedicated myself to that, but I've never, I've often thought in the last, whatever, 15, 18 months, what if this would have happened when Norman's, the restaurant in Coral Gables, my first real namesake restaurant, what if this would have happened to me and our team in 1999? The, the script would not be the script that we know, that I know. My life as I know it would not be the, my life as it would have been. And I, and, I, and I wonder often about all of you and how um, this is going to transform you and how this is, you know, this is your depression. This is your World War II. This is your World War I. This is, this is your Vietnam in many ways. And I don't mean that to belittle those tragic events of consequence that were global. But for yourselves, um, this is, you know, your life will be divided between then and after COVID, your careers will be divided between that and how you and how you go about doing business, how you go about creating the atmosphere that you want for your staff, for your guests, for yourself, for your families. We've had a lot of opportunity here in the last number of months to really reflect and figure out what is important. And, um, you know, I, my hat's off to all of you to have, have, have had to maintain as best you could the, your ideals and yet know that there were times where you had to squeeze your food into a box and put it in a car and say goodbye to it rather than have it sent over to a table on a tray from a beautiful, a beautiful heart from a person. For you all to transition from what you were doing two years ago to what you're we're doing during the pandemic heartbreaking but you've survived we've all all of us that have been fortunate enough to survive have survived it the question is now what are we going to do going forward what is going to be the nature of the hospitality business going forward it's going to be more thoughtful than it ever was the people who were americans during world war ii or during the depression i mean they were forever changed right it's it's human it's human nature. As chefs and um, restaurant operators and winemakers and sommeliers and and all of the, all of the components, all of the part of the people that go into making up the, the um, cast of characters that make restaurants possible, we all have a new a new landscape in front of us now, but we still have to come back to the original thing, which is to make people happy and somehow create the environment for teams that they'll feel, um, they'll feel the magic of making people happy. It, it's, you know, for me, it's never been about money. 
I barely ever made money. I mean, we did get kind of successful. Then we got set back on our ass when I went back to Key West for a while. Then we crawled back out. But it's been about that human connection. And you, Michael, uh, you so fundamentally get it. You're, and you're living it on a public stage more than most other people because you're broadcasting it. In this podcast, you're you're allowing yourself to be um, in a in a in a in an open mic conversation with some of the most interesting people that we have in our community. You all, other people that are not here in this room today, the great you know the great the great thinkers and doers of our industry are taking part in this particular forum, and that's beautiful. I love listening to it, and I do listen to it on the on the, uh, on, on the podcast. You know, even when I can't listen to it live. Shocking! That I, I was about to say that is a shocker. shocking thing. So uh, I I messed up a little bit, and I wanted to let everyone know I I didn't actually talk about the fact that we're eating. So uh, because because of how this would have impacted the conversation, I want to let everybody know Mike and Norman will will not be having the the meal you all are having. I don't know if if they're going to be nibbling on something or what, but please do feel free to eat. And then also, this is another thing I didn't do, and I didn't prepare Mike for. With each course, we're going to have uh, Somalia Todd. Uh, talk about the wines, and we'll have Mike do his massive table touch, uh, explaining the. Just give him a, give him a few words about the things that they're eating. I don't remember what we're eating. Well, that's why you have a menu in front. Okay, of Okay, got it. Is this this is your place? No. Yeah, I heard. Yeah, okay, cool. So, Todd, if you if if you want to come over, tell the people about the things, um, and then uh, when when you're done here, uh, and and from here on out, just come out, and and we'll know we'll we'll know when when there's wine. It's Todd time. Awesome. It's Todd time. Hi, everybody. Uh, so the wine you're having right now is Reventos. It's probably the most high-quality cava you can get. So it comes from Panetas. It's 45 minutes north of Barcelona. Um, it's technically cava, but they're trying to create their own DO to where it would basically be a Panetas Reventos DO, so it's their own thing. Uh, this used to be covered by the ocean, so the entire soil when you walk through it is chalk and limestone, and you actually see fossilized oyster shells in it. The entire vineyard is biodynamic, so you can think organic, all natural, however you want to word it yourself. Um, but really crisp, really clean. It's made the exact same way they make champagne, just with uh, Spanish grapes. So enjoy. Great. Uh, and, and Mike, before you do your giant table touch, I want to know this. This, by the way, is this Josh is Pasquale, who uh, who was able to to join us. And because I was in and out earlier before we really got going, um, I had not seen Derek. And I, I, as I was taking pictures, I saw him through what the a, viewfinder of my camera. What a I really jerk! Introduce Derek Kaplan of Fireman Derek's Bake Shop. Uh, yeah, so you know that, that's on me. Hello, Derek. Good to see you. Just like Nick on on this, all the nines, he's just crushing a, it, isn't he? A complete disaster. This podcast. Yeah. Uh, and and Mike, now you can do your giant table touch. This is with the churro, <laughs> Brit. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Cool. So we did a bay leaf churro. It's like a classic churro, uh, just dusted with bay leaf and a little bit of sugar and salt, and it's topped with Ocetra caviar and preserved lemon. This is how we uh, start our daily tasting menu as well. Um, the thought process with this dish was, I don't know if I've ever seen a caviar service that's a very Miami situation, mm. and I thought that the best thing to do would be to serve it on a savory churro. So that's what we did. Love so, it. Cool. Love that. So 
Um, just kind of doubling down on uh, some of the things that you mentioned. Um, the last year, and I think I've spoken to everyone in this room a lot, and I think the one thing that it's definitely pushed is everyone's creativity and really showed what this community is is really about because there's been plenty of opportunity to fold and there's been plenty of opportunity to just kind of say, fuck it, like we're hoping that we're going to get aid one day or whatever. But I would say a lot of people in this room uh, did the opposite. They said, fuck it, we're going to figure it, this sh- we're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And um, as romantic and as great as that sounds, it's exhausting. And I know that uh, for myself and I know a lot of other people that I've spoken to, um, it takes a toll on you, you know. And apart from the fact that we go through the restaurant industry, which every day is is tough, um, you know, I'm not one of those people that like gripes on like, well, restaurant industry is so hard. I mean, it's hard, but every job is hard in their own way. We chose what we do for a living. It is what it is. But this was something that no one was prepared for. Uh, this was something that, um, this was the hardest curveball I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> As a part two opening area in the first two and a half to three years being fucking dreadful and difficult, this was on another level of just, so what do we do now? How do we, how do we still support the community? How do we still support ourselves? How do we keep people employed? How do we keep pushing along? And how do we not give up on the overall goal, right? Like everyone, I think, and everyone in this room definitely has different goals. Um, but how do they not give up on their goal? And that's, it, I, I think that to me is the one thing that I will say over the last year when I sat with my team and I said, you know, how do you reflect on the last year and a half or the last year, however you want to paint that picture? For me, that was the reflection that I did which was, you know, we stayed true to who we were. We kept our goals. We wanted to do a thing. We did a thing. And I think I'm, like, dreadfully competitive, right? <laughs> like, I'm competitive to a point that it's exhausting and sometimes not great. But um, how do we end up better on the other side than we were previously? And that, that was very tough, and it was very taxing on myself and my entire team. But I think we did that. And I think a lot of other people did that too, because not so often do you have an opportunity to close your restaurant and think about it from all angles. Again, rebuild it from the bottom up, um, from a business perspective, from a service perspective, from execution perspective, like you need to be smarter all the way around. And, you know, I think the people that are smart really did that. And I I think that uh, some of them ended up better on the other side. The only time you would actually understand that is if you were to sit and reflect on it. And, um, you know me, I'm not good at reflection. So um, it was it it was an interesting time. And I think that we when I say we, I see the I say like the community overall have done a super fucking bang up job of just like bouncing back 100 percent. Also, we're like in a very interesting environment because we're in Florida. So like we were able to open up sooner than a lot of other places. (laughs) I just took a trip to Philly, which was like still working them some like themselves out. 
they didn't really know what was happening. Like, um, I went to go eat at Vetri, and oh, yeah. Vetri was like, yeah, we were just to, like able to reopen like two weeks ago. Like, I was like, that's wild. You know, that's, mm-hmm. I don't know, we've been open for like eight months, you mm-hmm. know, not maybe longer now, I think. Mm-hmm. So I could only imagine if, if a lot of us were not able to reopen our dining rooms or reopen what we do for a full 16 months, like what effect that would really have on the community overall. So I think as a country, like the whole F&B world is still kind of reeling and figuring things out. I think Florida definitely had like a week, you know, we were able to make a comeback sooner, um, but it still was a, a trying time, trying time. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of like say happen all happening so fast that it's hard to compare notes with what's going on in the other communities. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, what's Portland going through, what's Chicago going through. I mean, I, I, I've still got many close friends in Chicago, and I know enough about that. But, um, yeah, Florida was able to come come back, you know, much more quickly. Uh, not, not that it's back. It's not right. back yet. And I know that so many of you are struggling with the greatest issue of staffing. I mean, how many of you right now are here and going, fuck, I'd really rather be back. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I should be back at the restaurant right now because somebody called out. I know there's some people that aren't here because they had that last minute, uh, yeah, so-and-so got sick and so-and-so went missing or whatever. It's just, I, you know, now I, I, I think back to my biggest struggle for that period of time was when I was at the Betsy Rust Hotel, 1992, at the restaurant Amano, and South Beach was still just a Wild West show. It just was starting to rehatch at that point from what it was like in the 50s and 60s. I had come out of Key West, and, um, you know, I was super like, I want this menu, and it's going to have, like, everything on it I want to have on it, and I was so possessed with that. But then it'd be like, uh, but three people aren't here today. How are you going to make that happen? Somebody didn't want to come in because it's New Year's Eve and (laughs) so-and-so got sick or wasn't really sick, but they're not here. So, you know, I mean, I dealt with it in my own way, in that personal way. Again, not not like, you know, I mean, you can't call up one of these folks and say, hey, you know, I'm in the weeds. You got anybody over there? Because you know they don't. Right. Right Right now they don't. Staffing is something I think I've, also talk to all these people individually about. Um, I have lots of feelings about staffing. Um, I think that pre-COVID, it was difficult to staff. I think post-COVID, it's like impossible to staff. I just feel like our... So there was a peak, right? Uh, I would say 10, 12, 15 years ago of people wanting to do this for a living. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the mm-hmm. Food Network right. kind of... The the mythology of it. Right. Like, you know, everyone's this is this real lavish lifestyle and it's very cool and whatever. And then they got to fucking they have to clean a fryer for the first time. And they're like, what? This wasn't on TV. Like, yeah, (laughs) no, this this is not on TV. This is the part of TV they don't show you. It's the same thing of being an owner. Right. Like the owner's got it all. Like he's totally set up. This guy's got it all figured out. Like, okay, So, like, you know. There's so many things that people don't see, like, okay, so the pump for the bathroom broke and you have to make it through brunch. You have to figure it the fuck out. So a line cook's not going to figure that out. The owner's going to figure it out. 
if it's, you know, people like us, you know, mm-hmm. small individual independent restaurant owners, <laughs> it it's this misconception. And I feel like a big part of the restaurant world, chef world has changed a lot because people got the fucking memo that this is not easy. Like, it's just like, you know, again, it, it, it goes back to that time that, again, clean the fryer. What does that mean? You have to scrub the floor. What does that mean? You have to clean your station. You have to label. When you label things, you have to cut tape. What do you mean you have to cut the tape? Like, yeah, you need to cut the tape. I don't know. It's just the, I think the romance is now over. And I think that's also one thing, especially the fact that everyone had 18 months off and everyone found their new, they want to knit or they want to make hats or they want to, whatever the, whatever it is, they want to sell, they want to start an Etsy store. Like, I, it doesn't matter. There's so many ways that we could slice this and the reason why staffing has changed so much. But, you know, and also people can work for Uber Eats. People can right. work for Uber and they could, and it's a lot easier job than, again, cleaning the fryer. Wall Street Journal article today had to do with <clears throat> people in the industry who have left it and are coming back to it. And they did a couple of case studies, you know, young lady who was a bartender in Atlanta for the last 14 years. And she said it was like waking up from a long dream and realizing that I don't want to be in that industry anymore because I didn't have any other life. Mm-hmm. I was so committed to, you know, following following the the battle, if you will, being in the battle. That um and so she you know, she got a job working where she's working basically Monday through Friday and that's what she wants to do. Uh, and there were there were others. There was a young man who was, I don't know, a cook and he became somehow or another worked his way to become a banker. Um and he cleaned up and put his sport coat on and all that shit. I don't know. I mean, to me, I know for this for me, Norman Van Aken I'm going to open up. I don't care if it's a polydar. I'm opening up because I don't know how to be happy unless I can make food. Right. I But I also feel like on the other side of that coin, there's a lot of people that figured out this wasn't for them. But then there's other people that figured out this was for them. And that... The business. Right. Mm-hmm. The industry. And it's a clarifying as, situation. As, as a whole. Like, I don't know. If, for me personally, I couldn't imagine mm-hmm. myself doing anything else other than... Being in a restaurant, mm-hmm. some people menus. have said it's got. There's going to be a shakeout, and it needed to happen. Right. Yeah. I, I I do feel like the industry will get reset, and I think that's necessary, and I think that's totally fine. And I think just all hopefully of us, without hopefully not all, you know, the Bennigans of the world being what's left. Hopefully the freestanding, <laughs> the independents are Benigans, like huh? Bennigans. That's good. <laughs> the, I just came to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> well. But if you look at it, I, I feel like a, a lot of – there's shockingly a lot of smart people in this room. And um, uh, I think a lot of people have have been a part of that change. You know, like we wanted people to feel more valued at their job. We wanted people to feel like this wasn't just a job. It was a career. Um, right. I know for me personally that was a huge thing for me. Um I want to find people that really love this and they want to do this for a long time because I think that's what it takes for execution at a certain level. I think that's what it takes. I think you, you know, I, I didn't leave a job to go work for you because I thought I was going to make a ton of money. I, 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 good, good point. Yeah. 
I left a job to go work for you because I thought it was going to be great for my career. And I thought I was going to push myself to a place that I had never previously been. And that's what happened. And equally so, I did that several times in my career. And I thought they were all, it was all important. I think people who really want to do this long term, they will do that. They will <laughs> like, they will push themselves. They will look for, um, the style of food that they want to do and someone that's doing interesting things that's pushing the envelope or uh, an operator that's operating at a high level that they want to learn more about and how it's done. I think now is the time that we're going to see more of that. Yeah. Is there not the volume of workers that we had before? Sure. But I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I think with time, Things will settle themselves out, and I think it's up to a lot of people here to figure it out in the meantime. Big time, yeah. I'm amazed when I see some of the, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, the resumes, you know, of, of young people that w what their where their life has been, what their arc of life has been, and the places they've worked in, and the you know places that are. I'm familiar with, you know, and, and they've been here and they've been there and they've dedicated themselves. They have put their life second to the places that they that they they felt like this is where I'm going to be able to go and get the topping off knowledge that I need right now. Because for myself, I never worked any place famous. I worked places that were just neighborhood places. I mean, I just that was not in my path. Um but luckily for me, I guess, I've always been um, a reader. And so what I didn't know about the outside world, I brought into my own world through books. So I cooked and I read. I mean, the first time I worked for something famous was yours. And I, yeah. rem I remember it was like um, uh, it? orientation day. And you were like... Um, the New York Times said that there's three big openings in South Florida, and this was the first one. I'm like, fuck me. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, like, all right. I guess we're going to have to show up early every day. <laughs> then you'll be late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was supposed to be at work at 6 a.m., so I was never late. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that those things, I mean, it depends where you're at in your own mental. Like, those things make a huge difference. And I think – um, it set me up in my career to like realize that it, it didn't really matter what stage you were on. Every day was like a big day, you know, like it, it, there's not just like dinners that are big. It's like every service is a big day and you need to perform at a high level, like every single day. And I think that first experience working for you was that the second one working for you was more involved from the food side. And I think that taught me like a whole other thing. Like a whole other, but just expectations like that, that first, yeah. I mean, the New York Times said this. I'm like, okay, all right. So just even me that I was just a prep cook at that time was like, all right, so this is what pressure feels like in this industry. Okay, so now we got to show up. I woke up from a dream this morning where I was cooking. Probably the sixth time this month where I was cooking in my dreams. It's still there. It still is that. That sense of urgency, that sense of where's my fucking mise en place? How am I supposed to get the French toast made if I don't have the foie gras delivered? Right? Oh, man. It's 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 we're hardwired to somehow make make the play, make yeah. the play. 
catch the ball, hit the ball, whatever it is. We're we're all. I mean, I'm an old cook. I'm a cook. I became a chef, but I'm still a cook in my mind. I um I have two nightmares, like industry involved nightmares, in my life. One specifically has to do with the caramel for the foie gras dish that you just mentioned, <laughs> because I used to fuck it up so much, and then I used to have to remake it so often that it's I would just a, it's, like it's a hard sauce to make. No, I know, but, but I would just like I would toss it and I would clean the pot and I'd be like, all right, let me start again. No one would fucking notice. But, like we have, why are there six quarts of cream that are missing? I'm just like whatever. And then the other one is like fixing the walk-in. Cause I'm very specific about the walk-in and how it's supposed to look and like everything looks like a grocery store and whatever. And then like turning around and then it's all fucked up again. And then now it's like eight levels higher and it falls on me. And then I wake up and I'm like, fuck my life. I'm fucked. So that's, um, I, you know, cooking dreams for me are, uh, they're interesting because they, they always come from a place of like, uh, fear. I always feel like fear is the biggest motivator, right? Like fear of that fear of failure, that fear of not being ready for service, that fear of not executing the dish to the standard it's supposed to be executed at, mm-hmm. that fear of not fulfilling an expectation. And that's something that, you know, you hit on earlier, which was people join you for an X amount of time for a certain type of experience. Mm-hmm. And you want to... You know, you want to execute. Tell about Todd, you want to do your thing? You want to do your yeah. wine yeah. thing? It's Todd time? Yeah. Beep! So uh, the wine you're having now is uh, from some friends of ours that are here in town. It's Bozo de Rey. It's uh, Albarino. It comes from northwest Spain, just above Portugal. Uh, there's an old adage in wine pairings that if it grows together, it goes together. So these Ooh. vines grow so close to the ocean that they kind of almost pick up a little bit of salinity from the ocean air, kind of like how an oyster is not salty, but it has some salinity to it. So uh, hopefully with the dish, uh, it's light enough to go with the fish, but it's also always has a little bit of tropical notes to it. So the lychee should tie into the flavors of the, the wine itself. Enjoy. Thank you, Todd. So the... The Wahoo was local. It came in yesterday. And um, lychees were first of the season. We process them. We um, puree them. Then we make a consomme out of them through the centrifuge. Uh, clarifies it. We add lime to it. Clarify that as well. Um, avocado, we were hoping to get like first of the season avocados. We missed out by like just a couple weeks. Um Compressed cucumber that's turned into this little cute roulade that you guys can all see. And the buttermilk espuma to add a little bit of creaminess on top of that wahoo uh, for that like very kind of like sweet acidic tone that you get from the consomme. So that is a wahoo crudo. I'm going to jump in very quickly just because I figure this is as good a place as any for a commercial break, which none of you will experience. But this is where it will go. And I figure that in terms of... The, the experience here, it's also a good time to acknowledge sponsors. This has created the illusion that Pancom Podcast has much deeper pockets than it does. Boom. Uh, Boom. And we were only able to create that illusion thanks to uh, some of our sponsors who we very subtly have highlighted uh, behind Mike and Norman over here. <laughs> this is the that. first of your first notice. I, when I put those up, I thought Mike is going to hate these logos. Oh, man, I here. do hate them, but it's fine. 
<laughs> no, they're all everyone's great. Yeah, everyone's great. Uh, so many thanks to uh, Aganor Salif, who will have an ad here. So there's an there's a whole thing happening. Um, also, uh, thanks to Nidal. Uh, Aglutonomy and the people at uh, at San Pellegrino and Aquapana and Perrier. If you uh, feel bubbles in your face today, it's thanks to them. Uh, <laughs> thanks to D'Artagnan who contributed and who also, uh, Mike, you could speak more to uh, to what role they play in the menu, if any. But uh, I mean, so D'Artagnan I've worked with for a very long time since I uh, <laughs> used to work with you. And we're still working. Yeah. D'Artagnan, I'd have to say, has the most consistent, high-level product I've ever dealt with. Um, you know, we have their foie. We have our duck presses, their Rohan duck, um, their morel. We use their mushrooms. We use uh, – I mean, at, like I would say 80% of the proteins on our menu are all D'Artagnan. And it's really because – you know, there was times in my career that I tried, I would like, you know, let's test out another company, whatever. But it was from the consistency aspect. Mm-hmm. I could never get what I got from D'Artagnan. It's always consistent. It's always high level. It's always good. And their customer service, I would feel like, I've had three reps in my career and they've all been great. All right. You got to slow down. They didn't pay. I'm just that. saying. I, uh, forget about that. They paid. That's no good. I mean, you know. <laughs> They, uh, and they also, didn't pay me personally either. I know. I know what you're thinking. Fuck off. And I can see you. Huh? Oh, yeah. Kick Falco out, please. And last but not Todd, least, Todd, escort him out. There's uh, there's uh, Cavassier. Uh, so if you come out of here uh, not in good shape to drive, it's thanks to the wine during dinner, but the Cavassier before and after. Uh, Use Lyft. Well, yeah, use Lyft and blame Cavassier. Uh, So thanks to all of those people, really. I think that this is a a, a special experience, and it was because of of all of those brands working with us. We're uh, perpetually shocked that anybody listens to this thing, and we're even more shocked (laughs) that anybody wants to associate their business with this podcast. Shocking. It's incredibly shocking, but we're still here, guys. A hundred episodes in. How many episodes do we have? We're we're hovering around like in the mid-90s. Oh, yeah, mid-90s? Somebody, right. somebody asked me. Mid nineties were the best years, by the way. Right. So, yeah. Best years, at least for me. Somebody asked me whether we yeah. had big plans for our hundredth episode, and I told them probably not. <laughs> that would take a lot of organization and effort. That I don't know if Nick is going to put in. Yeah, no. This episode of Pancom Podcast is brought to you by Aganor Salif. Aganor Salif are the makers of excellent cigars that stand out because of the distinctive flavors of their own. Corojo 99 and Criollo 98 seeds cultivated by Cuban agronomists Oof. in Jalapa and Esteli, Nicaragua. Oof. Oh, baby. Wow. <laughs> that was impressive. I'm telling you. I'm an impressive kind of guy. Yeah. I, I, I have a lot of practice at this. You're great at the reading. Oh, man. <laughs> the Agonorsa portfolio of cigars includes JFR, JFR Lunatic, Guardian of the Farm, and Casa Fernandez cigars. You carry some of these uh, at Ariette in the humidor there. We do. I, I believe we carry three in our humidor currently. So t- tell me a little bit about why why cigars at Ariette. What was the... You know, I mean, I've always been a huge fan of cigars. I mean, I started smoking cigars a long time ago. But it's really the, the community of cigars. It really feeds into the whole ideology of Ariette. And it furthers that conversation that Ariette is like a, 
an experience only Miami can curate. And uh, I think cigars are a big part of that. You know, we're, we've been working for a while on creating like a cigar area in the restaurant and, you know, just like having that, that option for people to be able to go outside and have a drink, smoke a cigar and maybe eat a little snack or, you know, just really just hang out. I, I love that idea. And that's why cigars are a big deal to me. Okay, you're talking a lot, and these people paid for 60 seconds. I know. <laughs> you know what? you got to show me a little more money for that. Aganorso was founded by Eduardo Fernandez. Uh, that guy, by the way, there's a food connection, was one of the founders, along with his brother, of Telepizza in Europe. So if you've ordered a pizza delivery uh, to your hotel or something in Europe, good chance that you ordered it from Telepizza. Eduardo Fernandez uh, went on to uh, create Aganorsa. Uh, and they are making some of the best cigars in the world, thanks again to that Corojo and Criollo that they are growing there. Among other things, they make the Casa Fernandez Miami Aniversario, which, by the way, is so named because it is made in Miami. They've got factories in Nicaragua and Miami. Uh, it's an ex a blend of exclusively those two varietals, Corojo 99, Criollo 98, perfect for the experienced smoker to celebrate those special moments in life, like going to Ariette. You know, getting your duck pressed, and then you get a, you know, you you uh, get a cigar after. Maybe. I don't know. Possibly. Show me the money! Only Great Leaf makes great cigars. Aganorsa Leaf. Go smoke them. All right, so. I would guess uh, something that I, I haven't asked you, and I know people have asked me, have you seen the Bourdain documentary? It's not out to us here. Yeah. No. But so no, the answer is no. Mm. But I talked to um, Jeff Houck, the writer from the Tampa Tribune for many years, but now is freelance and doing public relations. He called me today to ask me um, what my what I might say as far as personal memories, because he's going to be on this panel. They're going to watch the movie at the at this major theater in Tampa, mm -hmm. historical theater, kind of probably like our Olympia theater. And uh, then he's going to be on a panel with three or four other people. So he asked me my, um, what I would, what I would say might surprise people in terms of um, my memories of, of, uh, of Anthony Bourdain. Just by coincidence, I brought this book today for Mike because I thought erroneously that his favorite book that I had written is called my, um, New World Cuisine. But when I brought this, I said, do you have this book? He goes, yeah, that's my favorite book. I'm like, I have oh. three copies. Three copies. Well, yeah. good. Three copies. And yeah. now we'll have four. So yeah. um, then you can give. But uh, but uh, the foreword by Anthony Bourdain. And so um, it's it's uh, with a lot of gratitude that, uh, that he and I were brought together through my editor, Dan Halpern. Um, coincidentally, I met him. Before that, before Dan introduced us together, when he first came out with uh, Kitchen Confidential, he had the restaurant in um, Coral Gables, the Leal restaurant there, which was in walking distance of Norman's. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the book came out, um, they did a book signing over there. Now, he had not been on television yet. And so there was no crowd, no line around the block kind of thing. And I walked in with two or three of the chefs from Norman's to, this, to the restaurant. It was mid-afternoon. And he was sitting at a table. His knees were about almost to the level of the table here. Uh, that lanky body that Tony uh, sh showed us in his life. And um, 
I came up kind of like around the side of him like this, and he, and he looks at me and he goes, oh, man, don't be pissed at me. And I'm like, pissed? Why? He goes, because I, cause I, you know, cause I cut down your, fr- your friend Emerald in the book. I said, yeah, <laughs> I, I know. He goes, are you mad? And I go, yeah, I'm so mad I'm going to buy a case of books. And he goes, you are? I go, yeah, I'm going to buy them for my staff. I love the book. It's fantastic. Hard not to love that book. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to have like the what it takes to watch that documentary. Why? Why? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I've ever, uh, you know, like I don't get um, people that are quote unquote stars or whatever. I never get into that very much. But I think what he provided for our industry as a whole was so rare. And I, the connection I felt for someone that I had never met, um, just like I've read Kitchen Confidential several times mm-hmm. and um, a lot of his work. And I, I don't know. I, I just feel like – so I, I've talked to people that have seen it. Yeah. And I just don't know. Maybe eventually I'll be ready to watch it. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if like right now I'm ready to watch it. Well, I'm going to watch it. Um I feel like I, I need to watch it and see what they do because it's going to be the biggest, um, most widely watched thing that he's done outside of his own shows. And I feel like I owe it as a responsibility to my, to our friendship to watch it and then be able to decide whether or not I endorse it or don't endorse it. So I'm going to, I'm going to watch it. Coincidentally, um, you know, Wolfgang Puck's, documentary just came out have you seen that Mm-mm. on disney plus it's it's going to be it's a whole different thing altogether. interesting and it's it's i think it's done well and then um our dear friend charlie trotter uh his documentary will be coming out in probably december called love charlie and uh the uh woman who is the director producer of that rebecca halpern uh i worked with i mean i spent a whole lot of time during the shutdown finding the letters and the papers and the menus and the, and the photographs that they needed for the documentary. I think, I think it's really a good thing that these documentaries are coming out because I think Charlie, if it had come out by himself, I don't know that it would, would get the attention that it deserves, not because he doesn't deserve it, but just because people are a little bit distracted by mm-hmm. the world. And so by having... Tony Bourdain, Wolfgang Puck, and Charlie Trotter's documentaries come out. I think it's going to bode better for Charlie's reception mm. in terms of at least people watching the documentary. I've seen that private screening. How was it? Emotional for me. Yeah. it was. I think it was done extremely well. And I'm glad to say the family gave it its backing too. Well, that's good. I think that's a part of the... You know, so I, I never met Anthony Bourdain. I'm, I was obviously just like a huge fan and read a lot of the things. And I think it influenced a lot of the way that I am. You know, like it just no fucks given. Uh, be who you are. And if people don't like it, fuck them kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I love that, and I'm all for that, and I think that we Which need... This is a shock to the audience, you know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Super shocking. Um, but I think that 
I think taking that on and and wanting to and being proud of that being who I am, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he felt so okay with it and then still um, went through what he went through, you know, internally. Because people don't really know what people go through internally, right? And Hell I think no. that I think that's a big thing in our entire industry is that, um, you know, chefs in all facets uh, across the board, doesn't matter what you're the chef of, um, they carry a certain type of air about them. Um, and in reality, you have no idea what that person is going through, right? Sure. Case in point, Case Charlie, in point. Tony, I mean, Emerald, not that Emerald has any, you know, anything that that has, you know, he hasn't died <laughs> like Tony and Charlie. Uh, but Emerald is a person, too. I mean, and, and, and he's had his ups and his downs and his lonelinesses and his... And his celebrations and all of that. I mean, who doesn't? Mm-hmm. I mean, there is this mythology that we co-create for the clientele that makes them believe that everything is just sunny side up and wonderful all the time in the restaurant world. And that's what we we we, we kind of owe them. That's what they're paying for. Theater business is a similar business, right? But people are people. And, you know, we, exper- we in the business, experience loss, confusion, Heartache, uh, financial failures. We experience all of those things. We do. And if we don't, I don't know how we're alive um, because we're, t- we're risk takers. Mm-hmm. We're going to take risks. If somebody says to you, hey, Mike, you want to do this crazy fakakta idea, you know, and, you know, it somehow touches some part of your heart, are you going to say, no, I'm just, I'm, I don't feel like, I want to take that chance. Are you going to say no? Maybe probably not. not. Yeah, probably, probably not. not. And that's been, you know, that's been our story. And, uh, you know, from short order cook, flipping pancakes to having a restaurant uh, that's won Beard Awards, you know, stuff like that. Why do you do it? Because we're put on this earth for a reason. Mm. And you just can't quit. You just can't, you know throw in the side towel and go, fuck it, I'm not going to do it. I don't think I could, no, I just don't think so. I feel like there's not uh, many industries that, I mean, we, I say we collectively, restaurants, people in general, are judged from top to bottom every day. We're on a main stage because social media has created a main stage every second of every day. And, you know, I think, uh, as I've told my staff several times, it's impossible to fucking please everybody. For it's sure. Just, it's just not like a, it's not a viable thing. You just have to believe in what you're doing, the food that you're serving, the service you're providing, the cocktails and wine that you're providing. You have to believe in those things, be educated on those things. And if people don't get it, then they don't get it. It's not going to be for everybody, especially if you're... I don't know if you're trying to change the game. I mean, how did everyone love Norman's when you first op- opened Norman's? No, of course not. Especially and when I started in Louis' backyard and I and I did that. I mean, that was um, they were like, "Why am I spending you know X amount of dollars you know when this guy's making plantains and black beans?" You know, right? They they didn't quite get the fact that 
Just because those ingredients were humble doesn't mean that our efforts were humble. Right. Well, it's interesting to, that you you mention uh, plantains and black beans because often, right, people ask me doing Cuban-influenced food, right? Sure. Why would you charge X, Y, and Z? And my response always immediately is because this is if my country was allowed to progress 60 years ago Mm -hmm. who knows if this is where it would be right if we were allowed to uh, be who we were and push the envelope to a different level then the sky was the limit and we weren't allowed to do that right so I've got I've gotten that question several times, and at the end of the day, I tell them I don't give a fuck. To be honest, I still do what I do, and I charge what I charge, and um, I, I think that's partly maybe why people like me, which I'd be shocked by. But <laughs> you never know. I gotta I, say, Mike, I don't know what happened in the two seconds that I was in that stairwell that right. you super podcast pro transition to what if Cuba were something else this is I didn't even mean that I didn't even and and then you you show up this is amazing I'm very impressed with what you just I let me tell you that that wasn't that wasn't fucking planned at all and that was just very serendipitous no you you got you got both both gold teeth in today poof no just one just one uh so I I warned you all this would be happening we're gonna slam the brakes on everything Super awkward. So that special super Perfect. awkward guest Rosa Maria Paya can can um, uh, I I don't know what the plan is. I have no idea what's happening. I was hoping to know. Oh no no no! This is you've done this podcast. You know how ridiculous this is. So um, Rosa Maria Paya, for those of you who perhaps are uh, not familiar or not among the 22 people who listen to this podcast, um, is the the founder of Cuadecide. Um, she is, uh, God, I don't even know where to begin, but we did, I think, what was maybe one of, certainly one of our, our favorite. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of our audience's favorite episodes of this podcast. Uh, and it was also, I think, the most illuminating. I think one of the things that Mike and I are proudest of is that, you know, in a way, a lot of the people in this room are pawns in our sick game. To lure people in with food and beer just so that we can drown them in Cuba. Uh, When they least expect it. That's pretty accurate. Uh, And one of the episodes that we drowned them in Cuba was when we were joined uh, by Rosa Maria Paya, who is, um, I I think, I don't know, I think it's rare that you look to somebody who is younger than you and you think, like, there goes a hero. You know, and the daughter of a hero, like this is a heroic lineage, and we're in a moment in time now in the world that this is, uh, uh, I think we're all privileged, you know, that you're here at all. Uh, I'm shocked. And uh, this will be, I'm not going to say that what you have to say is more valuable than what Norman has to say. It's 100% more valuable than whatever Mike is talking about. That's (laughs) accurate. Uh, That's for sure. uh, So I'm just going to let go of the microphone and let you do whatever you want with it. Thank you so much, Nick. And and thank you all for being that kind of punks. (laughs) I think that you are giving me a lot of credit. I think that the real credit right now is in Cuba, in the streets of Cuba, in the in that 
big amount of people that probably hundreds of thousands of Cubans that are in the streets, that were in the streets still um, since Sunday, and that, uh, and that today are being repressed in, a, in the most cruel and violent way that we can even imagine. When we, when we, I have to say, when we fantasize about this day coming, uh, there was always this feeling that, no, the Cuban military is not going to crack down in, against their own people. They're not going to do it. Well, they are doing it. And they are doing it in a very violent, in a very, in a very cruel way. There are kids that are dead right now. They are a lot of young people and not so young people. I have a lot of friends missing right now, a lot of friends detained, a lot of friends facing criminal charges. All this is taking place in Cuba. And at the same time, on Sunday, we had, we had the, the best news I have had in my whole life. And that news was the Cuban people is in the streets demanding freedom, demanding the end of the demanding the end of the dictatorship. That people need support. That people need all of us to elevate their voices. Their voices are very are very are very clear. They are asking for the end of the dictatorship. We just need to elevate that that message and to make those that have the power to help them with concrete actions to take that action. That kind of pressure has to come from us, and, uh, and that's the depth that we have with those heroes. Thank you, Nick. So, uh, and, and I might pass the microphone back to you because you might have other things to say on this subject, but earlier today, sort of on a whim, uh, Mike and I were in touch with Carmen, who is um, one of the, the staffers or volunteers or whatever the appropriate thing might be with Cuba de Cide. One of the things that Cuba de Cide does is... Um, to maintain the cell phone plans of a, a vast network of people in Cuba uh, who are doing everything from uh, coordinating each other to informing people in the outside uh, world off of the island about what is going on in Cuba. And to my knowledge, and I, 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 I don't think that this is a secret, but it's always a struggle to fund all of those cell phones. Um, and so, you know, uh, this is a thing that Mike and I have talked about for a long time, and I think that we finally are in a window where there's enough interest to, to fund that. And so we went ahead and we, we got in touch with Carmen and said, if we told people to send money to keep those cell phones functioning, where should they send it? And it was a Venmo thing, and it was the Ariad Hospitality Group. Uh, shout out to uh, new Cuban hero, uh, Andrew Falsetto, and whoever else <laughs> you want to shout out, Mike Beltran. Um, uh, uh, we'll be matching contributions to that fund up to five grand. Um, and, and that's a thing that everybody here, you know, can contribute to in some way, shape or form. Uh, if you go on, on Instagram, uh, you'll find the information about that in our posts and in our stories. But I, I just want to hand the microphone back to you to if there's something that you would want people here to take back home about how might I contribute? What should I have in mind about what to do in my position? Yes, thank you again, Nick. Uh, I think that the, the most important thing is, is to spread the voice. I mean, the people woke up on Sunday with the news that the Cuban people will, was protesting in the streets in a massive way, in a transversal way. At least 45 
towns and cities were protesting on, on Sunday, and we're talking about all the major cities. We are talking about we are we are talking about that that moment that we have been trying to provoke for so many years. Now that moment is uh, is taking place. What do we need? We need everybody to realize that the real problem, the real conflict, because there are a lot of noise also coming from the dictatorship, coming from the propaganda of the dictatorship, coming from the all the uh, partisan positions. We need to focus on the Cuban people and to listen to what the Cuban people is asking for. And the Cuban people is asking for freedom. They are asking for the end of the dictatorship, not the end of the embargo, the end of the dictatorship. That's the conversation that we want to have. That's the conversation that we want you to repeat and to provoke in your, uh, in your social media, in your social networks, with your friends, with the people that you know that can make something. Of course, this is, this is a very hard, this is a very hard struggle. We're talking about families. Tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them, but families, citizens, armed, peaceful citizens confronting an state with all the resources of an state and a criminal state, an state that has the weapons and that is using that weapons against Cubans. So, of course, resources are necessary, but also political will is necessary. There is something that we have seen once and again taking place in Venezuela, and it's brave people in the streets fighting for recovering their own country and the world failing to them once and again. We cannot let that happen with Cuba. And Cuba could be also the, the hope for Venezuela, for Nicaragua, and to be honest, for, for a pretty good part of, La, of, of, of Latin America. We need both, we need both arms. We need the Cuban people in the streets, they are ready. They are ready doing, doing, his part, doing their part. We also need the international community becoming the credible threat in the heads of those criminals that are using the weapons against the people. Because those criminals are also very cowards. That's what they are. But they need to be, <laughs> they need to feel the pressure. And that pressure comes from Washington comes, comes from each democracy in, in Latin America, comes from the European Union, and it's not going to come if, if we do not demand it, if we do not claim for that, if we do not pressure them in order to move and to act now. This is day four of protests in Cuba. All that we have from the White House is the, oh, that is so good, we, are, we stand in solidarity with the Cuban people demanding freedom. Okay, we got it, they are standing, now we need them to act. And those actions, <laughs> those actions are pressuring the repressors. How? They have a lot of, of, of sanctions that could be very targeted. We're not talking about sanction in the state, we're talking about sanction the criminal motherfucker that said that the, that the communists have to go to combat against the Cuban people. And, and quoting him, and that combat means that there are several kids death today. That's what is taking place in the island. Well, we need actions. We need those sanctions. Magnitsky Act, global mechanisms of sanctions of the European Union, the uh, Treaty 
of Rio of the uh, of the members state of the OAS, you don't need to know all these things. You just need to demand action, and those actions are needed in a in an urgent way. So that seems that all, all those are things that that you can help us to do right now. No one's applauding you. Yeah, I, I, no, That's no, totally. No, no one is applauding you. Trust uh, me. So you tell. I, I don't know what kind of a time crunch you're in. I, I know that we want to get on with this, but if I, I, if there is a question or two or something, you know, we can open the floor to that, or we can let you go about wherever it is that you have to go. I mean, you're of course welcome to stay, but I know there's a lot of things happening. Uh, so if, if, does anybody want to? Is there a question? Is there a thing? Is there this is a this is a three whiskeys deep uh, prompt. Yeah. I mean, from, a, from a Venezuelan, you are on day four. Venezuela has been in year twenty against Chavismo and Nordismo. What needs to be different in Cuba so it doesn't become another Venezuela where people are tired of fighting and just give up and lost hope and just migrate to anywhere? I I do think that the Venezuelan problem is a Cuban problem, and, and vice versa, by the way. Uh, but that vice versa is because now they are lifting sanctions from Venezuela, and uh, that's a way of helping the Cuban regime. Because the Venezuelan oil goes to the Cuban regime, even the one that they import goes to uh, goes to the the to the Cuban regime. Um, the Castro regime that have been the one infiltrated uh, in Venezuela to begin with, that, that is actually the, the one that directs Maduro. And we have a lot of uh, documentation of that fact. It's just, it's just a fact, a very sad one, but it's a fact. And the Castro regime itself is a very old and a very um, rigid structure. Uh, Comparisons are just terrible. We, we didn't need to, to make any comparisons between, between the, the suffering of our two peoples. But the, the structure of government in, in Cuba is very different in the sense that, first, we are not taking orders from any other country. The head of the octopus lives in Havana. Second, it's a very rigid, very well-defined pyramid, which is also very old, so hard scenes are easy to break. And what we know for a fact also is, not easy, easier. <laughs> what we know for a fact also is that the Cuban regime haven't even been, uh, they, they haven't been even under a half of a pressure that the dictatorship of Nicolás Maduro have been. We have to try because they could break easier. And if they break, well, it's easier to break Maduro, it's easier to break Evo Morales, it's easier to break Nicaragua. They are the actual head of the octopus. They are the actual head of the, uh, of the democratic instability in the country. And they are always, always, always trying to put the fight out. If it could be Venezuela, it could be the embargo, it could be the European Union. They are always trying to create a distraction and to create and to and to sell to the international community that the conflict is not the real conflict. 
the real conflict here is a people <laughs> demanding their freedom against a criminal dictatorship. They, of course, know they are, they are weaknesses, so they prefer to fight in other lands. Well, let's bring the war <laughs> over then, and let's try, because I think we have a very good chance. Fidel Castro is dead, Hugo Chavez is dead, Raúl Castro se está muriendo. Uh, and those sons and grandsons, well, they don't want to see they are, they are flying a space-restricted Havana, Caracas. And they don't want to see all their money around the world just cut. And they don't want to end to, to they don't want to end in front of the Hague court. They don't want that. So there's a lot of leverage that could be used and is not being used. Used it. Right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, this is a moment to push those buttons. They are going to run. They're going to run away if we get those buttons. Push. Of course. It might be a question, but is there someone leading the charge of leading this the protest in Cuba right now that you know the name of? Or is that someone that was either organically or? It's very organic. It's very organic. It's not. This was not a surprise. I mean, from just from January to June 13, there have been more than 1,100. Uh, public protests in the streets of Cuba. All the conditions were created for the people to, to, to go into the streets. The, the, the real question is why it took us that long. Uh, <coughs> uh, it, having said so, all the leaders of the Cuban opposition, all the uh, known people from the Cuban civil society, they are either in jail or detained in their houses. Of course, they participated. Our network of promoters were participating, and the ones that are still out there are the ones that nobody knows, <laughs> are the ones that are unknown for the military and for the Cuban state security. All the known faces are, are some of them facing charges uh, right now. So yes, the answer is there is no one leader, at least no one that we know of. If they actually make some progress, what would be the next step? What, uh, how would that, how do you see that uh, coming about? Like what's, if they actually win this little small battle, what, what happens next? Do you know what, do you have an answer? Yes, and first it's not a small battle. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very hard one. Um, and it's not a small battle just because if this battle results in a victory, then we have a transition process. That is why it's not a small, because the result of this battle is the actual outcome that we have been fighting for 62 years. Um, and there are, some, there are some conditions that need to be, uh, that need to be complied in order to just take the next step. And those conditions could be, uh, could be set, let's say, by different methods. For instance, Cuba de Cide is advocating for a plebiscite, just to ask the Cuban people if, if they want the communist regime imposed over them for 62 years or they want free, fair, and multi-party elections. Because if they want free, fair, and multi-party elections, just as they are demanding on the streets, 
then the whole system have to change and we go to a transition process which is actually something that the world knows very well and we, we need a, a I don't know how to say Asamblea Constituyente I'm so sorry a Constitutional thank you and we need some temporal laws uh, all, all of the all, all that is already written. That's a way to say it. All that is already written. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what I'm trying to say is, those laws have been have agreed have been written by the by the Cuban people in and out the island twenty years ago. We can't revisit it. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't update the transition programs. But there is not a lot of place to uh, improvise there. Because uh, we know what happened in Czech Republic, we know what happened in Spain, we know what happened in Chile, and there are some steps that needs to be uh, needs to be taken in order to have finally free, free, fair, and multi-party elections. In the Cuban case, you need a complete change of system because the Cuban Constitution just do not allow that. Actually, uh, you could end up killed if you just propose that. So um, I don't know if I'm uh, if I'm explaining myself here. If oh, I actually, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but the bottom line is this could this is going to be if this is successful, there is going to be some kind of negotiation with the criminals. That negotiation, if that negotiation is successful, that negotiation is for them to leave. Some conditions have to be. Uh, have to be some preconditions are necessary in order for that to happen. The real scene is here: how are we going to create the pressure for them to have to accept those conditions? You like, would you like the Miami community to get in votes and go to Cuba? Uh, I think that Raúl Castro would love that because part of what. They are thinking is is uh, in blackmailing the the Biden administration with uh, another exodus, right. and that happened in 1980, so, in 1994. So well intentioned Miami community that thinks I'd like to get in the boat and go. You would suggest that's not the best play. Not right now. Not with 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 uh, with American laws. Uh, actually, presidential decrees that actually. Uh, prevent the Cubans from uh, just going into Cuba without permission. No, no, that's not, that's not a good idea in, in this moment. Uh, I would love to <laughs> go in boat to, uh, and, just, uh, and just arrive in Havana and be part of the protest. But what we know that could happen in this moment when we still do not have that pressure for them to accept those conditions is that they are going to leverage that to pressure the United States, and that's a national security issue. You know something that's, that's and I'm just going to share this very quickly. This is not a question. This is just me sharing. Uh, I was born and raised in Brazil. Um, I'm Middle Eastern Palestinian, and I live in Palestine. And then out of all the places in the world, I moved to Hialeah, Florida. Don't ask me how. Good for you. So when I first moved to Hialeah, I introduced the Cuban community. And I learned Spanish. Uh, sorry. So anyway, as I was saying, I, was, I moved to Hialeah, Florida from Brazil and Palestine. And, and, and again, I'm just sharing my experience with you guys because growing up in Brazil, the idea of Cuba is a very different idea of what Cuba is. And, and then you go to Palestine, the idea of Cuba is a very different idea of what Cuba is. So when I first moved here, 
um, and I heard the stories firsthand from from my dad's uh, grocery store in Hialeah, um, I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So what you said earlier, I just want to share that. Like, don't take for granted what sharing the story of what Cuba really is. Don't say, don't think everybody knows. Because I'm telling you, I was born and raised in Brazil and I lived in the Middle East. And the story of what's actually happened in Cuba is not told anywhere else. So I know when I first moved, I was like, are you, are you sure? And they're like, yeah. I was like, no, but, but, but Raul, uh, not Raul, uh, but Che Guevara, you know, the picture that everybody, you know, uh, uh, the, the iconic picture of Che, like that, that lives everywhere, right? I remember Salt Bay, if you guys remember, he was. He I remember Salt that Bay, loser and I well. Looked at him, and then I was like, I'm like, he's, he, it's not that he's an ignorant, it's not that he's, it's just the story's not told about Venezuela anywhere. The story's not, the story's not told about Cuba everywhere. So it's super. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nailed yeah. it. But, but I saw that, you know, for me, I was like, it's so important that you guys, the, the, the people that are Cuban, are more close to us as a Miami uh, community to tell the story every time. Don't take it for granted. Like some people don't know. And like you have to share it, post it, talk about it. Because like when you share it and I share and he shares it and then and she shares it, it becomes more credible because it's true but you're fighting against the propaganda right so i just wanted to share that because that happened to me when i first moved to to miami i read today that russia china and iran asked u.s company to email them before which i thought was really hypocritical yes. um and i know that yes. you're asking us to share this story but what kind of pressure do you think miami florida and any cuban you know american has to put on the u.s to do something that I'm not asking to lift the embargo, but to add pressure in ways that can create change or put pressure on you, the regime that's taking place there. Todd's really getting shafted around here. Huh? I mean, yeah, it's fine. He'll be fine. Nick, you, you can always offer mm -hmm. us a drink. No, you can always <laughs> offer us a drink. It's not my restaurant. It's not my restaurant. These people need all the drinks. No, I know. It's good. It's Jan, a good it's question. A very, it's a very good question. I think that the pressure comes from the obvious electoral um, approach. Uh, but that's a pressure over both parties. And uh, I just, <laughs> I had a round table with Ron DeSantis yesterday and a round table with Debbie was on my show today. And we are asking the same thing to everybody. And uh, we need then to uh, feel that this is something that they owe the Cuban-American community, and this is something that is going to, uh, it's going to be black and white for the Cuban-American Cuban community. Having said so, there are very specific things that United States can do. For instance, United States, thank you. United States has the capacity today of offering internet access to the whole island, overcoming the interference of the Cuban regime. It's about 30 million, I think. Uh, but there is an, uh, an abbreviation committee in the Congress that could make that happen. Actually, they sent much more money to other countries, and this is a, this is a very critical situation taking place right now. This is a very concrete, practical thing that is going to help a lot 
that actually has the capacity to save life right now. But there are other and more, let's say, more political things that uh, the administration can do. There is something called the Global Magnitsky Act, which is a, a, a law that the Congress passed to be able to <coughs> sanction individuals that have been involved in serious abuses of human rights in the world. Well, there are a lot of individuals right now in the Cuban regime commanding the troops against the Cuban people. Please act. But not just act. Invite the rest of the world to add something, something positive about a democratic administration is the fact that they have much more appealing in the rest of the world. Latin America is going to receive better the message that if we were in the previous administration, well, give the message. Take your phone and start to call everybody from Chile to Canada and say, hey, I need you to be with me in this move because the Cuban people need it and the, and the Latin American people need it. It is, it is. And if you ask me there is political will to do so, I don't think that they are going to do it spontaneously. I mean, what I'm telling you is it's kind of basic. They already have the law. Uh, we're not asking for any extraordinary. Actually, why there are so many uh, enterprises still making business with, with, a, with a regime that shut down people in the streets? Why they are not doing with Cuba what they did with South Africa? Why they are not implementing the Sullivan principles and putting consequence on that on that enterprises? All those things create the leverage that we need in order to build that credible threat that we need to create in the in the in the minds of those of those of those criminals. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I have informed the Rosa Maria team that we're going to be here pretty late. So I don't know what you're doing, but you're welcome to come back and check if we're still around. Okay. And we probably will be. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what to say other than thank you for stopping by. I, I can, in Miami, of all places, there are a lot of people who would love for you to have stopped by. And uh, this was an absolute uh, privilege. It was the most Pancom podcast thing that has happened in a very long time to interrupt a conversation with Norman Van Aken for uh, Rosa Maria Paya. Look at this. Look at this. Who, who knew? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, thank you very much, and uh, and uh, now I will awkwardly hand it over to Mike. And of course, Mike, you get, you're welcome to say things. Oh man, and we're back. <laughs> you know, I I think um, we're living in a, a very interesting world and in a very interesting time. And we've been talking about that the whole time. Um, but then to add kind of like South Florida's personal, just this like underlying thing of the relationship with Cuba, the relationship with, um, I mean, there's so many 
Cuban Americans in Miami. And what's happening currently is hopefully historic. I mean, it, it is historic, even if it doesn't bear the fruit of the outcome that we all want. Right. To be able to say we're no longer afraid is a very powerful statement. I mean, the whole reason why uh, there's been a lot of like conversations between Nick and I, how can we do more? For this cause that for us obviously has it, it has a lot of weight. And, you know, we weren't really sure where to put our efforts, right? So the reason why we chose um, to basically raise money so people can charge their cell phones, that's mm-hmm. essentially what we did, was... Freedom of the press in a new way. Right. Is an effort to move the needle because the people now... I won't say are fearless, but they are showing more fearlessness than they ever have Mm -hmm. and an opportunity for them to be that information like so many people here were asking for by just being able to use their phone, right? It's the first time that I've ever seen uh, social media actually do something good. And And it's an opportunity to assist in even a very minuscule way that we're, I mean, we're just paying for people to charge their cell phones. That's essentially no, it. No, that's great. That's fantastic. But that thing alone. That's grassroots. That that part alone will make such a difference in the long run that it's incredible. I mean, even the opportunity to talk to your family in Miami, the opportunity to record something that, is not supposed to be known to the world because what's happening right now is what they've done for 60 years, which is shut down the rest of the world from knowing what's actually happening so that the rest of the world can just fucking forget because mm-hmm. they will just forget. It's easy to forget a small island 90 miles off the coast, you know, and that's how they keep their power by lack of knowledge, by lack of awareness. You know, there are a lot of questions like what Matt mentioned, what if something actually monumental happens, what happens next? It doesn't matter. We got to fucking get there first. And I think at that point, that's a better problem to have than what we have right now. And, you know, like um, for me personally, uh, growing up here, being born here of Cuban descent, the only conversation I've wanted to keep alive is the fact that the real Cuban-American culture, the real Cuban culture is not dead. It is still very much alive. And it's very much alive through the people that want it to never go away. And, uh, you know, people talk about, like, Cuba's got such a high literacy rate. Of course, if you want them to believe the things that you want them to believe, you're going to want them to read the things that you want them to read. It's just like a, it's a simple fact. That's how you change a culture forever. Right. Is by uh, feeding them fake knowledge for 60 years. So I think part of like uh, the reason why I'm always so incredibly jacked up at all times is because I feel like uh, the purpose that we have and that I have is to show if we were never to stop 60 years ago, where would we be? And I hope that where we would be is something like the restaurant that's sitting above us, you know, progressive, interesting, forward thinking, 
uh, zero fucks given. Just like just do, just be who you are, and let the chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. And I think that's for me one of the things that I think reigns supreme. And and I hope that's like uh, one of the things. If I'm ever remembered for anything, I think I hope that's it. What you'll be remembered for, among other things, Michael, will be your ability to transform the um, what it means to be a Cuban American chef, and and bring forth food in a way that is not um, wrapped in the uh, amber of history alone. You're you're what you're what you're doing tonight with this menu what you've been doing uh progressively with Harriet has been to recast the story of what it means to cook cuban food and that's what i love about Harriet and that was that was my fondest hope that you would take from working with me would be that you would tell your story about what it means to be a cook a chef in america in this particular time despite in spite of COVID, yes, and all of the people that are here. I mean, I think that our mission is to truly represent where we live. If I lived in Hawaii, I'd cook it in a different way. If I lived in Colorado, I'd cook it in a different way. But here, living in Key West, Miami, my notion became... I, I was transformed from being a Midwesterner to being a South Floridian. And in the process... Um, I had, you know, I kind of had, I didn't have any ancestry in the deal. I mean, I didn't have a Cuban grandmother or a Dominican grandmother or grandfather. I didn't. But I just simply fell in love with the flavors. But for yourself, I'm, I'm, for yourself, you're doing it. I am mystified by those that are, that live here and cook as if they didn't. I am mystified by people who come here. And up at her, operate restaurants and don't seem to ever visit Homestead mm. and, and understand the farms or understand the, the fishing the fishing community that we have here. I, why why would you just always import everything that you can and and deny the local farmers and fishermen and growers and artisanal food makers? Why would you do that? Just don't get it. I mean, is it so hard? Can you not be imaginative enough to? Take, you know, take all your French learning or your Italian learning or your whatever learning as I, which is where I began my learning, but, you know, graft it onto the place that we live now and make it interesting. This is what, this is what so many of you are beginning to do in your generation that didn't happen before this. Well, I mean, I, I, I find myself very fortunate working for two chefs that took it upon themselves to make that a point. Right. It wasn't just like we're a farm to table restaurant. Right. Um, We've never used that term. I've never been a fan of that term. But essentially, when I started working for you, it was just a way of life. Mm -hmm. It was just like how we were taught to be. We Mm -hmm. were taught to, you know, when there's tomatoes in season, we put tomatoes on the menu. You know, when there's mame in season, we put mame on the menu. It's just. Essentially, that those were just things that um, I was taught as a young cook, and I was like, you know, this is just the way it is. Uh, and I think I've taken a lot of um, – uh, it's been a big point for me to teach 
my younger chefs that this is just the way that we are. Do you have the seasonality chart hanging up in the kitchen? I do. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And it's – is it more difficult here than other places? Sure. I guess kind of, but it depends on how you look at the product, right? Like using a mango isn't the same as using asparagus. You know, using uh, jackfruit is not the same as using radishes. You know, it's not – it's or stone fruit, I guess you would say. But how you approach it will challenge your creativity and challenge really how you think about food. Hmm. And – I'm okay with that challenge, and I think that there's a lot of other people that are okay with that challenge I'm also. glad where we live. You know, we are in the most biodiverse place potentially in North America. We have more – we have the, we have greater ability to see um, especially fruits and fruits and tubers here than anywhere else in North America. I learned a lot uh, when I did the Fruit Poster Project working with um, Larry Shockman at the uh, Fairchild Tropical Gardens – I learned so much about our diversity and, and how how unique it is because of the particular latitude that we're on. Um, but we, people just have to get out of their comfort zone and go, all right. I mean, I was in a line, uh, I guess at Whole Foods the other day, and there was a woman who bought one thing. She had one thing, and it was nyame. Oh, yeah, nice. And, and the, you know, the, the, the checkout person had no idea what it was right and it was not anywhere in their charts but it was in the store so she it's not like she brought it in from the outside right this thing looked medieval it was like <laughs> this piece of uh, it looked like i wondered what kind of knife it was going to take to cut this thing up and they had no way to figure out what to charge her for and i'm like it's nyame and they're like okay what's the and i'm on googling and trying to find an english word for nyame for them while i'm standing in line and this thing's coming up and so they finally said well we'll just charge her for yuka and i go fine let's that's yeah good. that's equal i mean i guess it's equal enough i i'm i'm intrigued by um when so this book the reason why it's one of it, it is my favorite book that you wrote is because, you know, it breaks it down by country and like things that are normal in that country or whatever. And I think that the reason why, I I mean, I wore my original book out uh, so much is because when you're not allowed to travel, um, you Mm. know, like I I didn't have a lot of money growing up, so I, I didn't travel much and I wasn't exposed to a ton of food other than the food that was in Miami. But my family wasn't like adventurous, I guess you would say. Um, it shows you uh, a lot of different Latin American and Caribbean culture through food. Mm-hmm. And for me, someone that didn't travel as much, I think why I gained such an affinity for food is because you travel through food. You learn sure. so much about people through food. So when you wrote this book specifically – um, and the reason why I love this book so much is because there's a picture of Fan Fan, right? It's on the yeah. Tres Leche page. Fan Fan was our old butcher. Fan Fan's in two of my books. Is he? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was our old butcher at Norman's. Um, you know, that journey, uh, what was that kind of like for you? Like, was there a lot of things you never messed with and that you had to, I mean, educate yourself, learn through other people? This book was the greatest learning experience I had in writing a book. The book before this, New World Cuisine, was me 
uh, riffing, me, you know, un, me exploring in sort of an, an untraditional way. When I wrote this book, um, I decided to find out what the traditions were. And um, we, we began the process by, once I realized the significance of what this book was about from my editor, we interviewed the entire staff. And we, we, we almost like, like did the census kind of interview, like where are you from, where are your, grandparents, where are your parents from, your grandparents from, who, who, where do they intermarry, okay, what are the dishes that they cooked, what are the dishes that they loved. And we began, you know, a very, very um, organized process of trying to figure out what mattered for this book. And I had a, a map of everything from Florida through the Caribbean to South America, and it was a big map that was, you know, like oh, like that size right there. That was over on a wall of my office. And I had to figure out, did we forget a country? Did we forget, you know, a, a, an amazing dish that, from a country? And then there were certain countries where I realized I was way over representing that country and not representing, let's say, Ecuador or some other countries that were less well-known. So... This book, unlike the others, this book took me four years to write. And I remember getting about two years through it and thinking I was kind of done. And a, a gentleman um, from Venezuela said to me, you've written a very good book on Caribbean food. Let's get to the rest of it. You know, like, come on, you're not, you're not done. And I'm like, holy shit, he's right, you know. Uh, he was he was just a great mentor to me, uh, Luis Zalamea, his name. Um but uh, yeah, for this book, it was really it was really me, and I think it took me further than you know, like when I wrote Key West Kitchen, that was just like that's where I lived. It was kind of an easy book to write, which I wrote while we were working together at Tuyo. Uh, when I wrote Feast of Sunlight, it was my first book. Anyway, um, we have an amazing place that we live in. And it needs more representation. And it needs people to appreciate our DNA. And her appearing today and showing and talking to us about, you know, the socio-political aspects of what's going on. It's no not only about the food and cooking techniques, it's about the whole textural aspect, the cultural aspects of what it means to be um, a South Floridian. You mentioned Feast of Sunlight. That's my second favorite book. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I I just feel like the riffs in that book are like, for me, just because I'm incredibly like, I love old school ideology behind food. And I I loved Feast of Sunlight. So it's like New World Kitchen, Feast of Sunlight second. It was just like, it's such a good book, uh, Feast of Sunlight. And um, I've uh, copied those parsnip. I think it was parsnip pancakes. Parsnip pancakes. Parsnip you know, pancakes. that is the progenitor to Down Island oh, French Toast. I know, I know. I'm well aware. <laughs> I'm well aware. I did uh, plantain pancakes with uh, torchon for a long time. Plantains were the breakthrough for me. The first time I had plantains, Madura plantains, when I was 20 years old in a little cafe in Key West, I'm like, guys, crack. Yeah, that, yeah. That just took me over to another place. Todd, are you around? Where's Todd? <laughs> Is Todd here? Todd gave up. Did he? Well, I mean, I, I just uh, so I'll just give you guys the food the food breakdown of what you're eating. So, the um, 
We skipped a course, which is totally fine. Um, Gave it up? No, it's not coming? No, we no, we did it. You guys ate it. But okay. just Rosa Maria was doing oh, her the, thing, the, the, which is which is great. Um, we're 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 now on the duck duck masitas. Todd's here. Welcome, Todd. All right, Todd time. You're back, Todd. Tell us about the wine we're having with the duck masitas, please. All right. Uh, so the wine you're having right now is uh, Pierre Clos. Uh, it's a Pinot Noir from Burgundy, France. Um, super classic with duck. A um, little bit of texture to it. Um, a little bit of spice. A little bit of oak. Uh, it should have enough acidity because Pinot Noir is a little bit lighter to kind of cut through the richness of the dish, but still stand up to the richness of the uh, duck itself. So, cheers. So then, Todd, give up the microphone. Um, the the duck masita was kind of like a last minute addition. So it's duck confit that's uh, lightly fried, tossed with sazon completa that we make in-house. Underneath it is, um, so it's tamal and cazuela that I actually made for the first time for family meal at Norman's. And Chef enjoyed it very much, so he actually put it on the menu with shaved black truffle. And um, I think it was like beef shoe, shaved black truffle, and the tamal. We have it on our menu served with uh, uni. This variations with the crispy duck, uh, this like red pepper jelly espuma, which is a weird idea I had late at night, um, and um, I thought it was delicious. So that was that was that was the espuma gastric. Yeah, pretty much. So I think now that we're going to start um, going into the main course, we're going to start to slowly wind down into. Um, Q&As, but before we get into Q&As, for all these fine people here to ask you um, questions, I I would like to um, kind of talk about a, a few small things yeah. that I think that um, a lot of people think are small, but I think that they're like huge, which is one... Um, the work that you've done for South Florida, how important that really is. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, like, so, like, how did you, how did you get here? I don't, I'm not, I'm not totally sure what here means, but um, when they asked me, uh, how did you get here? The first thing I said was, I left a shit job to go work for a guy that I, this was the first book that I bought, um, and I wanted to learn everything that was in this book but from you and how important that was to kind of like our community as a whole um you know south florida food has taken so many it's been an interesting ride i think you would say over the last like 40 years of south florida food right we were this very we're still a very transient community there's a lot of tourists there's a lot of things i think that's why we don't get taken as seriously as we should be taken um, but you started a, uh, I think you kind of put a flag in the ground and said, you know, South Florida is, is serious about food, right? And then thankfully there's been several people that have carried that flag on and have done, have planted their own flags, uh, people that have worked for you, people that have worked for other people. But essentially what you did was say that there is a community for food here and, uh, we're kind of not to be fucked with. 
people don't take it that way. I, I think that um, when I go elsewhere, obviously because I'm very opinionated, uh, people don't like what I have to say. But I think our food right now is as good as it is because of what you did when you opened up Louis' backyard all the way to Norman's, right? And I think that that trajectory has set us on this path that we are today, right? Forget about all the worldwide pandemics or, you know, <laughs> crashes of 2008 or whatever it may be. You know, that uh, laying that groundwork, that foundation, it's like what I tell my staff every day is like, when we open up a place, if we don't lay that foundation right from day one, we're fucked long term. And you laid the groundwork. And that was hard. I, I'm sure it was hard groundwork to lay, you know, and, and I think only you would know how hard it was um, because Miami was just known as a tourist place. Yeah, was. It was. Um, you know, Michael, I um, feel very blessed that I came. I became a cook, not a chef. In uh, in the time period that I did, because it, it was a very transitional period of time in America, new American cuisine was the term that was utilized, probably for the first time around the late late seventies and certainly through the eighties. Um, there was no James Beard Foundation Award situation yet, certainly no Michelin Guide. There were magazines, um, and the magazines had come from really, you know, uh, Holly Homemaker kind of magazines in the 50s and the 60s, the McCall's, and and, and then the Bon Appetit's and, and all of that, which uh, they progressed to. But somewhere in the 70s, there was an awakening that was going on with what American food should be. It coincided with the, um, the Bicentennial. Um, 1976 being the bicentennial, I think, I think Americans were beginning to feel like, what is our cuisine? And um, there were people who who really uh, were were the earliest ones: Alice Waters and Chez Panisse, uh, Wolfgang Puck at Spago, Jeremiah Tower Jeremiah joining Tower. Alice Waters at Chez Panisse, um, Larry Forgione, Larry Forgione, Forgione in New York. Um, Paul Perdome in New Orleans, um, Jasper White and Lydia Shire in Boston. Uh, they were they were example, and of course the American Southwestern food movement. These people were examples. These chefs were examples of um, things where they were giving specific understanding to a regional American cuisine. I was at Louis when this was really happening in Louis Beckard in Key West, and. Um, I was torn because I'd been out to wine country and I was thinking, you know, that's beautiful out there. Maybe I should go to Napa. But something said, no, your your obligation and your, um, you know, where you should do is you should give Florida um, expression. And so I very, very much, and it was a very specific day, and, and sitting on the after deck, which is the, the uh, wooden deck bar that looks out of the Gulf of Mexico at Louis Backyard, where I saw a ship going over the horizon, where I had a really, a really strong epiphanal moment. I was sitting there in the morning. It was a beautiful day. 
I, it was like around 1030 in the morning and I had espresso and I had a stack of books and I was thinking about what I was going to make for a specials that night. And I saw that boat going over the horizon and I was like, where are they going? Who are who are they? What what what? Who are those folks, and where are they going? And then it dawned on me that they're probably going to Cuba on that boat. And I let my mind drift about, and I'm like thinking, what would they eat there? And what do they, you know, what what their experiences be? And it was at that point that I realized that it was time for me to stop cooking foods from all around the world because when I first got to Louis, I was doing. French and Middle Eastern and you name it. I was doing all kinds of things. And I closed up my books. I closed them up, pretty much put them in a, a box for about a year. And then I started to go to the little restaurants in Key West and sit down at the counters with like a reporter's notebook. And I would ask the cops and the waitresses and the cooks what they were cooking and what those words meant, what the translation of the words meant, what were these vegetables. There was a little uh, fruit and vegetable stand in town I would go to, and there were little uh, bodega grocery stores, and I would begin to like just purposefully make my menus reflective of where I lived, where I was living, which was Key West. And lo and behold... Uh, a, a, a woman who was vice president in charge of creative development comes down from New York, has dinner at Louis' backyard on a Friday, loves it so much. She I didn't meet her. She comes back on Saturday, has dinner again. I didn't meet her. She writes me a, a letter, says, hey, Chef Norman Van Aken, we were at uh, Louis' backyard about a month ago, and we had dinner at your restaurant. We loved it so much we came back the second night. I have two questions for you. Would you like to write a cookbook? And have you saved your recipes over the years? I was truthful about the first answer. I would like to write a cookbook. I had not saved my recipes <laughs> over the years. Right. But, right. I, but I said, sure as shit, lady, let's go. And uh, that night I went home and there was a big kind of blot around my desk. And I began to write on this corner and I finished on this corner all the dishes that I were in my mind that I wanted to have up here. And that was... That was really the, the template for uh, Feast of Sunlight, the first book I wrote. Oh, I love that book. Oh. It really, I, it's like, um, I have the, not hard, the. You have the soft cover? Yeah, I do. Oh, fuck. I was looking for the hard cover today to bring you, but I just, I couldn't find one. Charlie bought a case of them, and I bet he still has, well, I bet his son has them. Anyway, I'll get you a copy. Yeah. No, I and I still I love it because I um, I bought it back when Amazon was selling like used books. I don't yeah. know if they still sell. Used oh, books. they do. They do. Yeah. And because um, you know the life of a prep cook, you don't have a lot of money. So I bought a used one, and it was it's still you it's got still the same one. Still soft cover though. Soft cover. I hate that cover. <laughs> it's still, it's great. <laughs> I'll get you one of the. Got me through a, somehow uh, or another. I'll a, get you a one. lot of long nights. So. Um. All right. Cool. So I guess for the interesting wind down for the next uh, Q and A, Nick. Are you ready for Q and A then? I think it's. I mean, we're going into the main course. It's that time um, about that time, huh? We've we've, we've had a lot of uh, ups and downs and sideways throughout the whole thing. Very typical of us. Very typical of us. 
So um, this is where we'll open it up. This is a brand new thing. This has never happened. Never There's happened. A situation for Q&A. So, I would never um, give this opportunity. Not only has this never happened, but we are going to put a probably inadvisable amount of trust in our audience. And I'm just going to give the microphone to whoever asks for it. Larry. Don, Don Larry Carino is asking for it first. And just just pass it around. How, to whoever has things to say or ask, pass it around. And... Uh, and and that's it. And, and, and by the way, uh, introduce yourself. For the benefit of Long, no, you got to introduce yourself the right way. Long Island Larry. Long Island Larry. That's how you're known. Is it Larry, Larry Long Island? <laughs> for the 22 people that listen to this thing. I do love my Long Islands. <laughs> yeah, it it is mean, the HOV lane to happy I can't town. call you Martini Larry because that's... I love I my martinis as well. I'm a multifaceted person that's so that is a in. very accurate statement. but when you got to feel good fast well, I <laughs> okay I guess enjoy your it. sipping bourbon i'll feel better in five minutes yeah. <laughs> this is for norman <laughs> chef how are you um i'm gonna task your memory if you can uh oblige me can you recall from your years working or with michael working for you michael's biggest kitchen fuck up <laughs> I have as as a publicist in trade I've told any number of stories not just about Michael but chefs and they regale us with fun one. stories like the time I made Thanksgiving and I forgot to turn the oven on and put the turkey in and blah blah and whether they are true or not I mean I'm a PR guy it's six of one half a dozen of the other but in in reality could you recall perhaps Michael's maybe worst day or worst or worst fuck up because I'd really love to hear it. I'm going to say no. But, and, and, and just so I understand. The world would like to know. Just so I understand, Mike, this is the guy that does your PR? He is. Shockingly. We have a very interesting relationship. Shockingly. Yeah. I would say this might be it then. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Michael never fucked up. Never. Only thing he ever fucked up was when he left me and went to work for somebody else. Oh, oh man. Oh. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I can definitely recall a couple of times that were detrimental to my mental health about fucking up. The I think the first one was... Um, we're opening up 180, right? And uh, the grill guy, both grill guys, so I was a prep guy in the morning. The lunch grill guy and the dinner grill guy both just no-showed, so I just stayed, right? So I was like on hour like 16, but no one on the chef team had noticed. They were just like, there's a body here cooking things. Cool. That's fine. So um, we had the wig burger. Remember that? Of yeah, course. we had the wig burger at nighttime, which was the idea. The original idea was that it was like a wig. You would change the toppings on it all, at all times. I didn't know that at the time. But um, it was burger with ropa vieja. Right, right. But Phil, Phil says the story differently. But he <laughs> um, uh, essentially someone sent the burger back, right? Uh, and um, I was, I don't know, I was fucking shaking in my boots because Norman was like, literally, this is my station where Nadal was sitting was where he was expediting. And I had only had like maybe three conversations with him before that. 
And they send the burger back, so I just grab the burger, put it on like a half sheet tray, and just pop the whole fucking thing in the oven. And I'm like, this will work. This totally makes fucking sense. But it doesn't. So um, we used to put like just as garnish for, I don't know if people ever actually ate it. There was a cornichon on the, the toothpick that went on the top. And I gave the burger back to him, replated, and he touched the cornichon on top. And he was like, who the fuck taught you to fucking warm up a pickle? And I was like, you're right. You're right. You're totally right. I totally fucked that up. Yeah, I'll do a new, a new pickle. My bad. But that was one of the times. And I think the there was several times, but I only shared two. And then the second time was when we were at Tuyo. Um, I don't remember what we're – I think it was like an event. And we were like setting up sandwiches for this like pass around. It was like a Cuban sandwich yeah, play on a Cuban sandwich thing. And he just walked by my station, continued walking, and then walked back and then looked at my station. And I already was fucking shitting my pants because I was like, why did he make a U-turn back to my station? And is looking at all of my mise en place and I'm like, I'm fucked. I don't know what the fuck is happening. And he just looks at me. And he points at the sandwich and he says, would you serve this to your mother on Mother's Day? And I'm like, oh, my God. I, I, I'll replate them all. I don't fucking know. Like, no, I, yes, I don't know. Whatever, I'll redo them. So those were my two biggest fuck-ups. Larry, now you're fired. Go ahead. Who's next? Yeah. You're not fired, Larry. I take it back. Yeah. Hi, it's Terrence Riley from Aganorsa. Uh, forgive my voice. I just got back from Vegas, so it's not usually. Welcome good. back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so what I've noticed, I'm, I'm 40 years old, and uh, that's not old, or I'd like to think it's not old, but it's not exactly young. And when I was younger, I mean, I worked at a busboy at a restaurant, and I had different jobs. And, like, they, they weren't really sensitive. Like, they would just, like, kind of, you know, berate you and yell at you and, like, even beat you up sometimes. And now that when you're older, I notice the younger generation is not really attuned to that method. Do you have a different approach dealing with it? Brittany Rothwell from the back says, preach. (laughs) Do you have a different approach dealing with younger people now? Because I find my experience, I have to, when I deal with people that are a lot younger than me, I have to take a different approach than certainly that was taken with me. Um, which which I don't have a problem with, and I, I, I liked, and I feel that I'm a better person for it, but it just seems that it's not an effective method today. Me? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what method? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, I come from a different uh, generation for sure. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a screamer, but... Um, you know, pretty much had to put your food in the window. And uh, we didn't really, um, we, you know, we weren't touchy-feely folks, you know. I mean, I, 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 mean I, I remember feeling very bad for a woman who was working for us at Amano one oh, night because... Uh, I know the story. You know the story? Yeah, I know the story. She was so, she was so, you know, riven with the idea of being part of that team that, she peed her pants, and it was the pee was coming right down her leg and right onto the line. And 
And I was like, shit, Sally, you gotta go, man. Go. I mean, for that, I was like, no, don't. Don't be, don't lose your whole soul over this whole thing. We're, we're serious, but we're not crazy. <coughs> Depends. I mean, um, when I was like very young in the career and like I had my first management job, uh, I remember my, I was like, I'm always, I've always been like anxiety ridden. So uh, I remember my chef, his name was Ramel Meza. He's still a very dear friend. He lives in New Orleans now. I worked with him for many years. And he just looked at me and he goes, dude, it's just food. Take a deep breath. Ever since then, I've, I've had like a very different outlook. I'm still anxiety ridden. So I, and I'm still like a micromanager in a lot of ways. But I think because of the years that I played um, – you know, team sports and so on and so forth. Something that I've taken from that is everybody is motivated in a different way. And I think now more so than ever, right? Like, you know, kids are, their motivations are very different. Um, Like there's kids that are living for the day off, you know, in a lot of other industries, it's like living for the weekend. And, um, the one thing I tell my staff all the time is like, I don't expect other people to work like me. I don't ever want you to work like me. You know, like I want you to do what makes you happy. And that's tough because, you know, the standards and, you know, the level we want to get to and how we want to move and how we want to progress. Like that's, it's tough for them to like consume that and be like on their day off, be like able to decompress if they really care about the thing. But, you know, I try to promote it as much as possible. I do push people very hard. Um, but it is a, a definitely a, a different environment that we're, we're working in than previously, you know, there is no answer to that question. To be honest, there is very little. Like, uh, what I see from the younger generation is they want to feel valued. Um, I feel like I was fortunate enough to, as much as I got, I got a lot of shit. I felt like I was very valued in my career. Um, people valued my work. People valued, uh, the sure, idea. You I, worked the 16th hour. Right. Right. That's true. <laughs> but, um, I feel like people, um, always treated me extremely well all throughout my career. So I, I can't, when people say like, well, I don't get this thing. I don't get it. You know? Yeah. You know, it's like you said, you know, facing anxiety issues. Yeah. Me too. But what I found in the restaurant world was that as much as I felt like out of place in normal society, if you will, Fuck me. I felt, That's I so felt true. like I'm on a fucking team here. You know, working at the Pier House in 1979 with, you know, the, the Rat Pack that I was involved with, and some of them were graduates of the CIA, some of the first graduates of the CIA. This, those folks had an education. I did not. But I, what I lacked in education, I made up in, you know, kind of sweat equity. And I, so while I didn't feel like a whole lot of uh, normalcy about myself, let's say, you know, I came from a, uh, I came from a pretty... Uh, broken up family situation but there in that kitchen all those things 
dissolved and I and I and I felt like and then I would finish that shift yeah we'd go out we wouldn't get crazy shit faced but we'd go out and we'd decompress and we'd have a number of beers and then we'd get up the next day and we'd do it all over again and that that helped me go from being a nobody cook to being somebody that figured out a path forward to a kind of uh, American success well I think it uh I mean, you nailed it there, right? Like you're looking for uh, the reason why the kitchen made so much sense to me was because I came from team sports. I was very lost. Yeah. And then I was like, well, this is like another team sport. The only thing is you're playing a game every day. Right. And, yeah. you know, you're trying to execute every day. You're trying to um, be there for your teammates every day. And I think... To your question, Terrence, like I always find it pretty fascinating when there's people that are involved with team sports of any kind and how they act in a professional environment. I always find it that they their approach is always a little different. Not all of them, but a good amount of them. Their approach is a little bit different, and I don't know why. Do you feel the level of uh, heart people have or the passion is the same? Man, that is a loaded fucking additional question. Um, Yeah, I mean, the like passion and purpose is tough. You know, like what is someone's passion? What is their purpose? I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I don't know if I totally knew what my purpose was uh, up until just a few years ago. But do you feel the desire to execute, to be successful, to to, to achieve? Do you feel that that's the same for, for you, for you as it is for people, you know, whether you're working with younger people or older people? Well, I, I think, sorry to cut you off, Shane. I think that what you find as success is not exactly what the person working next to you finds as success. And I think that's the biggest issue. You know, like for me, success was younger when I was younger and I was reading his books and looking around me, I was like, you know, this is what success is. And I think success changes over time. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, now for me, success is sitting here with you succeeding. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect segue to my question. See, wait, guy needs a microphone. Come on. Let's try to be like somewhat. Um, structured Sorry. here. <laughs> Mike, one, two, three. Mike, one, two, three. All right, cool. So, amazing. By the way, thank you guys, first and foremost, for having us. Absolutely amazing. It's such a cool uh, place for us to be, to be with and listening to you guys. But one thing that sort of fascinates me and I kind of wanted to ask you, Chef, is... When you, I'm sure you meet many people that are extremely talented, right? The the Michaels of the world. You you meet you meet hundreds of people, and some of them stick out. You as you as you as being uh, a super experienced chef that has a lot of experience in the industry, do you notice the Michaels of the world as you're going through your life and say, this person, this person, this person, this person, most likely will be an amazing chef one day. And if so, what what is it that you see in them that you're like, wow, you know, I mean, perseverance, tenacity, whatever that is, what is it that you as a chef matters to you 
when you see someone, an up-and-coming person working under you, they're like, this person, if they stick to their guns, most likely they'll make it. Great question. Yeah. Um, Michael is definitely one of the superstars uh, in the, in, 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 let's say, my mentorship. Long before Michael, I had the opportunity to mentor Charlie Trotter. And a handful, not a lot, let's say a handful of people who, who um, I clearly could see that um, they were going to go places. And it's, I think the, the combination really is a combination between drive and humility. It's an odd combination. It's a very confusing combination for the person who has it. Because how do you mix up drive and humility? Because in some senses you're looked at like an asshole if you don't have humility, and in some senses you're looked at like a pussy if you don't have drive. So um, it's that admixture between drive and humility that I would say are the the, the drivers in whether or not they're going to um, rise above and be remembered. Really, that's what it is. Success is one thing. There are a lot of people who are successful. You know, they belong to the country club. They drive a fancy car. They have money in the bank, whatever. But are they going to be remembered? That's that's the other thing. That's that's what was. That's what became important to me. It was somehow to to have been on Earth and part of a culture in a way that what I did was going to be recalled later then you have a, a type of of a, of a i wouldn't say immortality but you'll have a, a little bit more than your you know your 75 years on earth that was a good question yes given all the changes that have happened in the industry staffing etc what do you think needs to be done to create an environment to inspire people to walk into a restaurant for the first time and make this their career? What, what to do people to walk in as a staff member or yeah. as a guest? As a staff member, particularly as a cook, what's going to inspire the next generation of people who would want to make this their career? Well, never more so than now. You have got to be able to exhibit to them that you are creating a culture that includes them. People are burnt. You know, I mean, look, and I see ads in, you know, in the windows of the McDonald's of the world where they're like, you know, they're going to pay for your cell phone or they're going to, you know, help you with your college education. You know, like we've, we've gone through a major, a major cha uh, change. There's a sea change that is occurring here. And I, and, uh, and I saw that, you know, uh, today, one of the, one of the trades, QSR uh, trade that, you know, they're, they're talking about, um, Money for childcare, things that never were even on the table before are on the table now. What did it take? It took a huge crisis. And you know, I would say that the the you know, as Tony Bourdain would say, the overlords are going to have to share a little bit more. I don't think that the overlords exist here in this restaurant in this restaurant group, but in regards to the vast superstructure of the restaurant world. Um, which will have a trickle-down effect, 
when people understand that they're going to pay five more dollars for a Big Mac than they did five years ago, they're not going to be sh shocked shit to see that if they're going to get a beautiful piece of uh, fish at Ariette, it might cost $35 versus $30 because they now are going to be conditioned by the larger drivers in, this, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the hospitality world. Larger economic drivers. I, I, economically, I, I agree. I think that from our perspective as like small restaurant owners, um, operators, I think it's what differentiates you from everybody else. I'm, you know, like, I think everyone's understaffed, like, but even proverbially before COVID, like, a person or two down to really execute what you want to execute on a certain level <coughs> was always a reality. I think now it's like finding the people that really want to be a part of the thing, right? Like you're not just providing a job and livelihood, you're providing a purpose. Some, I know for me, like I left college and I said that I wanted to just work in restaurants. The direction in which I went in changed right but it was eventually molded by the people that i worked for norman you know like those things influence my career long term and i think that and it's not like i hate it when people tell me it's like a fucking sales pitch because it's not a sales pitch in reality it's who you are right it's like what are you providing to that person saying that this is going to create a livelihood for you long term I'm not just giving you a job. I'm giving you a career, right? Like, and I, I work specifically on the kitchen side, right? So when I talk to cooks, I'm like, what is your overall goal? What is your, what is it? What is it that makes you want to do this? Because it's not just a fucking paycheck. You know, like I, I've never worked for a paycheck in my life and I never will forever. In reality, what I do is because this is what I really fucking love to do. Now, finding a person and saying, is this what you love to do? And then it's also equally for us saying, if this isn't what you love to do, then you're maybe this isn't the place for you to do it at. Very no maybe in there. I mean, I'm just saying it's like it's hard, it's harder for us because we're accepting the fact that we're going to continue being one, two, three people down. Right. Instead of hiring this person because we just need a body. Right. And I think that's the it's the interesting side of it, right? Like, I, I don't know any other way to be because if someone's just like, no, I just need money and I just need whatever, it's like, well, then you know what? This isn't the place for you. You should go work at McDonald's that's going to pay for your fucking, uh, your cell phone bill and benefits at 11 bucks an hour. That's essentially what you should go do. Or but go, you'll still or, be doing that when you're 45 years old. Right. Or go work at Chi that gives you a $1,000 signing bonus, which I don't know the fuck that means. <laughs> which place? I don't know, some shitty place. I don't I have no idea. I'm just saying, I'm I'm just giving you an example of like what what differentiates people in this room to like the larger majority of like larger conglomerate restaurants that are just opening to open as opposed to opening with a purpose. I think that's my diatribe on it. Yeah, by the time that Michael came to work for us, we could show Show people, definitely. Look, people came to work with me, let's say, in the original, before Louis, after Louis Beckyard at Norman's. 
they came in, they were entry-level line cooks. They were making whatever the, the pay was at that point in time in America, right? They are making this. But if they stuck with us, they could go from this strata right here, let's say it was $12 an hour, right? But work with me for two years, and you're going to go from $12 an hour to potentially $40,000 a year. And then if you stay with me another four years, you're going to go to $60,000 a year. What other industry allows you that scale? You're going to work in a factory, which is where I worked before I became a cook, not a chef. Mason yeah. jars. Mason jars. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you're going to work, you're going to get your $6 an hour, then your six thirty-five, and then your six ninety-five, and then you're going to be, you know, you're going to be 65 years old with, with nothing much more. What we didn't sell them but showed them was that if they were able to invest in themselves, work hard, they could actually go from making, you know, kind of the usual rate of a person who was working any kind of blue-collar job in America to making something much more meaningful. You make more money. I mean, I was making more, by the time I was, you know, 45 years old, I was making more money than many college professors. That's not bad. Do what I already love to do. That's the beauty of the restaurant industry that a lot of people take for granted is that you, even if you don't have a, a degree, you can start. If you hustle and you work hard, you can actually become someone that makes 60, 70, 80, 90,000, 100 grand. I remember when I, when I graduated from college, my dream was to make 50 grand to make my parents proud. Yeah. I went to college and I spent a shitload of money. You know, the servers at Norman's in Orlando, right? They come to work at 4 o'clock. They don't have to have a degree. They don't have a special set of tools. They're going to make $65,000 a year. They're going to go home at midnight. They're going to come at 4, leave at midnight, work four shifts a week. That doesn't suck. No, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> and, and that's a whole other different conversation between the front of the house and the back yeah. of the house. <laughs> We don't have enough podcasts for that left. <laughs> That's true. Who else has got another uh, question? This oh, John Matt? Taco from uh, Fire Pet Hospitality. Fire Pet? Fire is it Fire Pet? <laughs> fire Fire um, Pet. The Cavassier has touched. Norman, I see that you brought your wife here. I'm just curious. Are you disrespected that Mike didn't have his corn rolls and his gold tooth in tonight? Yeah. <laughs> that was John Falco from Fire was Pet. Was it a John Falco question? That's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> I want an answer. <laughs> then why? You, well, I have no idea what you said. Yeah, I mean, no one. Neither does anyone else. We wanted to know if you were disrespected that Mike didn't have corn rolls in his hair today for the uh, podcast. Mike has gone through lots of different looks. <laughs> yeah, Mike has gone through lots of different looks. When Mike, yeah. when Mike so, came, when Mike, Mike came to work for me, he had a buzz cut and he weighed about a hundred extra pounds or 50, 60 I, extra pounds. Yeah, no, probably like a hundred, a hundred extra pounds. But I also he did looked have, like a you know a corn fed football player from the Iowa. You know, he's like was the MVP of his basketball. Yeah, I was the eighth grade eighth grade MVP of, of basketball. My, yeah, eighth grade. I mean, I was thirteen. No, it was different times. You must have been a guard, right? I was a point guard. I was the point guard of the team. I was the MVP of uh, eighth grade. Eighth grade MVP. Eighth grade MVP. So I mean, uh, I know you guys already ate the main course. That's good. 
I, I hope so because it's been on the menu for four years. So I hope it was excellent. Um, good. That's good. Um, we're going to wind down into our dessert course. Um, I think there's no more questions. Nick, do you have any questions? I mean, I think this is where we attempt something like a wind down. That's nuts. Let me tell you, this has been the most absolutely pancom podcast thing I've ever seen. Yeah. We had a big political debate in the middle <laughs> at around course three, which was great. Yeah. And I think it was very needed. Uh, everyone's full and full of alcohol, which is also very Pancom podcast like. And then we're going to smoke some Aganorsa cigars right. right after. Yeah. Uh, which I think pairs with our dessert very, very well. It does. Yeah. Do you want to tell people about the dessert before we do the wine? Okay, I'll, I'll talk about the dessert if, if Matt and Falco ever shut up. Um, you guys were the kids in class, right, that never shut the fuck up, that were in the, in the back corner? That was definitely you. Falco, you too. Yeah. Whatever, you guys can go fuck yourselves. Um, so the dessert is actually the only dessert I've ever been responsible for. Not ever, but that's still on the menu. Um, I... When I opened six years ago, I said I would never put a flan on the menu because it was kind of like a layup. It was like, shut up, Carluba. And um, so then I, after about a year in, my pastry chef left. Uh, she must not be named. And I was forced to come up with all the desserts and whatever. It was, it was fine. Here comes the flan. Yeah. So <laughs> here comes the flan. Yeah. Shut up. So I I visited I visited uh, San Francisco, I'd say like nine years ago for the first time. And uh, a friend of mine introduced me to candy cap mushrooms, which I never had heard about. You smoke them? I did not smoke them. I did not drink them in a tea either. Uh, and I actually ate them in an ice cream sandwich. And I was like, this is fucking delicious. What is this? And he was like, it's a mushroom. And I'm like, wild so then i always thought what would be the easiest way to implement this into my food so when she left i was like all right so now i gotta come up with some fucking desserts Where'd she go? Dallas? oh i don't want to talk about where she went i won't i won't go i won't go there um she's great we've mended our ways she's yes. amazing um so i i came no no salt bay restaurant so I came up with the candy cap mushroom flan, which reminded me of coffee with a sambuca crema and coffee crumble on top. And it all like really worked out incredibly well. People loved it. And that's why uh, since our uh, new pastry, corporate pastry chef Devin Braddock has joined the team, this is the only dessert I am responsible for that has stayed on the menu for now five years. So... If it sucks, keep it to yourself. If you love it, tell me all about it. Um, and I think it goes very well with cigars and all the uh, Negronis that I'm drinking. Good stuff. Yeah. So in the spirit of the wind down, we always end Wait. with... Yeah, time out. Do you want to give Todd his opportunity? Because, Todd, we've skipped oh, you Todd. twice. Todd. I feel so bad. Todd. Last time. Yeah. Hey, Todd. All right. Yeah. Last time. Last time. Last time Todd was involved with the podcast, me and Falco almost fell out of here. That's the plan.
That's all right. Good. <laughs> Great. So Executed. I've been waiting for 10 years for somebody to tell me what the fuck a natural wine is. <laughs> uh, I still it's don't a, know. To it's this. a fad. That's what it is. Um, but this is technically, quote unquote, a natural wine. Uh, it's a Lambrusco. Typically, Lambrusco looks like the last wine you had. Very dark in color. This is rosé. Uh, it's made in the same fashion. Um, that's The secondary fermentation is inside the bottle, uh, where the bubbles come from. Really clean, really crisp. Uh, just a bright, nice way. After a big meal, I don't want to end with like dessert wine that's like super heavy and like honey. Like I think this is just a nice way to kind of cut through the flan, and I think it has some earthy properties to go with the candy cap mushroom. So great, Cheers. Todd! All right, everybody, Todd! Nice, Todd! So um, normally our wind down involves all the recommendation Normally. things, but we've covered so much ground Normally. here. You, you tell me, do, you, do, you, do, do either of you have, normally would end with parting recommendations, where you recommend a thing to the audience. In this case, some of our audience is here in person. Uh, all 22 of them. All 12, not even. Yeah. Not even 13 of the 22 are here. Uh, so, um, we have a, we have do you a have anything that yeah. you would recommend uh, to the people who are here with us in, in, in the flesh? Or the people who are listening or watching? Uh, it could be absolutely anything. It could be a song, a movie, a book, a travel destination, a meal, whatever it might be. That's usually how we wrap up. What would you recommend to people? I uh, I have one. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So obviously I've been in the process of building and opening jugs. And what's gotten me through a lot of that is uh, Derek's um, empanadas and pot pies. Thankfully for that, uh, I can walk across the street and eat and then come back and continue to yell at general contractors for not doing their job right. As everyone in here would probably be like, yeah, that's that's pretty normal. So that's my parting recommendation. Norman, any parting recommendation for the people? You guys are getting uh, some goodie bags, right? Oh, yeah. So oh, this is part party recommendation, part shameless plug. Like Love that. that. That's good. That's a double entendre. Uh, my recommendation has to do with what's in – I don't know what's all in the bag, but there's two only, – Only two things matter. Okay. Yeah, uh, um, I've partnered up with some nice young men that um, are helping me make some of my signature sauces. One's a mango moho, which Michael's infinitely – I've made that so many times. Many times. Uh, they're both in the same size jar. The other one is called rum and pepper paint. Oh, also, also made, made that right? several times, yeah. They are they are very different in terms of how much you would use. So my recommendation is, um, I don't know, maybe Google you know, me somewhere because I don't have a little like stick that you can watch a video of me showing how I make the paint, how I use the paint. But when you when you when you open up the paint and taste it, you're going to taste like something that tastes as strong as let's say. A sweet soy sauce. So you have to use this very judiciously. What we do, the most typical way that we use it is we brush it onto a, a fillet of fish on one side, just enough to coat it, and actually like do put it, put the fish on once on the plate, <coughs> paint it, come back another two minutes, paint it, maybe one more time, paint it, paint it only on one side. Then you sear that fish, and um, and it won't take much. Um, of that, but then uh, let's say it, it could be anything. It could be snapper, it could be grouper, whatever. It's you know it's very adaptable. That, 
But then you sear it on that one side, stick it in the oven until the fish is done, pull it out, put the mango sauce at room temperature on a plate, and then you have a dish that was one of the signature dishes of all time uh, for Normans. Um, So you're going to have those two different sauces in your bag. So my recommendation is uh, go easy on the pepper paint, not so easy on the mango mojo. Who's going to make the stuff poblano? Frankie, <laughs> <laughs> I I um I I would add to that as recommendations for the rum and pepper paint is to braise pork belly, paint it on the rum and pe- like put it on the rum and pepper paint, put it on the pork belly, put it on the grill, and eat it. Right. I think you guys are gonna like find ways that I haven't I haven't done it with it because I was sort of locked into that fish dish because it was it was what we did. But anyway, I, I remember watching them. that station. Uh, the people who are making them, Kira Market, um, they're nice young folks. And they are, you guys might go, you know what? I want to do my own line of sauces or my own, even one sauce. Just do one, say one sauce. They can potentially make sauce for you like they're making for me. And you don't have to have them being grocery stores. You can have individual fulfillments. You can have 100 customers and that's enough for them. So it's kind of cool. The the first time I made rum and pepper paint, I was scared for my life. Why? Because you were sitting at the pass, and then this gigantic flame started <laughs> at 180. <coughs> and I was like, what the fuck do I do now? And I just grabbed the hotel pan, and I was like, Bong. Smart. Yeah. You know, See, that's act. why he's here. <laughs> act, <laughs> act quickly. That's all you can do. Self-preservation. Is yeah, yeah that was it. So I, I think with that, you know, I... The flan is in front of everybody. I think that we'd like to transition into our no microphones lives. Uh, now we can tell it like mid flan. And I, I, honestly, I'm I'm a little shocked at how quiet this room has been, considering the guest list. Uh, there's a lot of people here who uh, I, I'm commending. I'm, I'm, I'm commending you for your like self control here. Uh, we're gonna turn off the mic in a second. I want to thank all of you for being here. I want to thank the fuck these guys. Of this event. So we're gonna thank all the people. We're gonna thank Cavassier and Pellegrino and Aquapana and Aganorsa and D'Artagnan. We're gonna thank uh, also Cura Market, who are the people responsible uh, for uh, the Norman's two products where you get in your goodie bags. Uh, I'm only shouting them out despite they're not having cut a check because of the Norman connection and the Belen connection. Uh, one of their co-founders. Oh, rearing that dirty and head. And also, as long as we're talking about goodie bags and things, there is another person in this room who is responsible for one of the things in your goodie bags. Carolina Quijano worked with oh. Cavassier to do some <laughs> Cavassier-infused chocolates. There you go. Yeah, your t- I don't know if you mean just, just your table neighbor or what. I don't know if that means you get an extra chocolate. Uh, so, uh, and, and also, again, shout out to Aganorsa. Uh, we are about to go and light up some Aganorsa cigars. I can't wait. Uh, with a couple of cocktails that will involve Cavassier and uh, San Pellegrino Oakwood. I have never had San Pellegrino Oakwood. I'm not 100% sure what that even means, that uh, bubbly water would taste woody, and I'm super interested to find out. Woody Bubbles. Woody Bubbles. Woody Bubbles. That sounds like the best nickname anybody could have. Peace out, people. Peace out. Thank you very much. Enjoy your song. All right. We're done. Big credit to Matt and Falco for not fucking this whole thing up. Nice work.
Yeah. Thank you for organizing this. Oh, yeah. All right. No. Fuck that guy. Too many, I'm too many. I, I really do. This is a sincere thing. I'm back on for this. I want to thank not just not just Mike, uh, who I thank publicly, and he gave me shit for saying nice things about him, so I won't keep talking about him. But the rest of the yeah, who's finally following me on Instagram? No, but but really, aside aside from Mike, who you know, who I have said plenty of nice things about, um, uh, I, I want to thank all of the Ariette people. Many of them are not here, but I hope that they hear this at some point. If for no other reason than I think if you tallied up the retail value of all of the alcohol I've been served while recording podcasts, it's more than any of the ad revenue Mike has seen from this podcast. <laughs> That's uh, without a doubt. Yeah. So, uh, so thanks to the Ariette people for not only more than two years of, of putting up with this weird thing we do, but also for putting this thing together uh, that certainly I had very little to do with organizing. Uh, this was uh, this was an Ariette experience you had, and Pancom Podcast was kind of like infiltrating. What, what, what an incredible deal. What an incredible night. Yeah. 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 And I'm thinking to myself, like, there's no dollar amount that I would not, not that I'm super wealthy, but I'm saying there's no dollar amount that would not pay for it. This is incredible. Like, Thank you guys. Like absolutely. This, <laughs> this was absolutely incredible. Amazing. I mean, from the food, from A to Z, from chef to chef, like, doing this. Like, dude, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you.